Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome, friends, to another r slash nuclear revenge video. Today we've got a crazy story about a crazy ex. But first, make sure to hit those like and subscribe buttons down below so you never miss any of my daily videos. That said, our first story of the day is revenge against an awful ex. I never thought I would want to share this story again, but my best friend and I have been reminiscing about our past mistakes lately, and this was one of the things we laughed loudest over. It was the worst thing to happen, and I was really heartbroken at the time. But it's now been over 10 years since it happened, and I think I'm ready to finally talk about it. When I was in my early 20s, I think 24 or thereabout, I met this guy, let's call him D. Because although he had a really big you-know-what, he turned out to be a huge D-bag. Anyway, D and I met on a holiday cruise that my friends and I go to every year as part of our little way to stay reunited since leaving college. It was the peak of summer, and the cruise was in Italy, so I was always in bikinis and tiny clothes. His father owned the boat and the guest house that my friends and I were staying in, so we got really cozy really fast. I discovered that his grandparents were filthy rich, which made him rich by default. He was the hottest man I'd laid my eyes on, with a tan, always shirtless body, straight white teeth, and the perfect smile. My friends and I ogled him all the time, as did some other fields, but he took interest in me first, which made me very happy. Although I wasn't ugly, I also wasn't exactly the most good-looking girl in my friend group, so it came to me as a surprise. I had dated a lot, but D was the sweetest person by far. He said all the right things, took me on the most romantic dates, and to visit all the places that tourists missed out on. And he spent a lot of money on me. I was a gal from a low-slash-average income home, and I usually dated people from the same financial circle, so most of our dates were pretty low income. But this man had more money than he or his family knew what to do with. So he bought anything I wanted as soon as I indicated any sort of interest in it. It was a little strange at first, as I was used to doing things myself, but the more I complained, the more he showered me in gifts. He did it until I finally shut up and agreed to be spoiled by him. I thoroughly enjoyed myself, and by the end of summer, we were already saying I love yous, and I even met with his parents for dinner a few nights. They loved me, and his mother even gave me a gorgeous necklace that I still have to this day. It felt like we were meant to be, and I was so sure that I'd found the one. His money was only an added advantage to the fact that he was sweet, smart, and incredibly well-mannered. Unfortunately, summer was over before I knew it, and I had to go back to my real life in the US. I was so devastated because I wanted our summer relationship to last forever, and I wasn't ready to leave him. On my last night in Italy, he took me out for a candlelit dinner and we went on a romantic walk along a bridge. At the end of things, he gave me a promise ring. It was the sweetest thing and I felt like I was being proposed to. 
Somehow, we talked about making it work, despite the distance, and I was beyond thrilled. I wasn't ready to end things with him yet. The entire time that we dated virtually, it was filled with phone calls, online you-know-what, and he wired me money and surprised me with gifts pretty randomly. I had the good sense to save most of the money, thank God. Nearly three months into our relationship, I got a call from D that he was on his way to the USA to see me. Naturally, I was elated, and I found him a really good hotel to stay in for the two weeks that he would be around. I was so on edge that all my friends and co-workers noticed that I was expecting something. My best friend and I had worked at an animal shelter together at the time, and she constantly asked me why I was so happy. I'd been keeping my long-distance relationship under wraps from everyone, and I wasn't ready to tell her, so I lied and said that I was just in a much better mood lately. I was counting down the days on my calendar with fervent anticipation, hoping and praying that nothing would happen to disrupt my boyfriend and I's plans. I don't know why, but for some reason, I felt like I needed to keep him a secret from everyone. I spoke in hushed tones, cooped up in one corner of my room whenever I spoke to him. Eventually, my super handsome, super rich boyfriend made his way to my hometown, and I took a few days off of work just to stay with him. All we did at the hotel was eat, have lots of fun, and sleep in. The perfect little mini staycation. We also had a lot of conversations about our future separately, but I could see him in mine. He studied law at a prestigious Italian university and planned to get a master's degree before he would begin practicing. I studied to be a veterinary doctor at the local community college, but I also did have plans to further my education. It felt like we aligned in all of the right ways. We talked about children, and it turned out he wanted as many children as I did. And it all seemed so perfect, him and I, that I started to dream of a future together, marriage and all. Trouble in paradise began when Dee decided that he wanted to meet my family. A little backstory on my family. I'm an only child, and my parents had me pretty young. My dad became a trucker to support, and he'd been doing the job for a good chunk of years. Mom learned to cut hair and had been doing the neighborhood's hair for years while taking care of me. It was a pretty good family dynamic and I loved and adored my parents, as they did me. But there was one major problem. My mother was a very slim woman yet well endowed and she took advantage of it by wearing as little as she could manage. I want you to take a moment to imagine a 47 year old woman wearing hoochie shorts that her butt hung out of and a teeny tiny crop top. That was my mother. My dad loved it when she dressed like that because it supposedly made him feel young, but it embarrassed me immensely right from my school days. She never paid any attention to me, and sometimes she called me jealous. I tried to talk him out of it, telling him that my family was strict, my mother hated men, and my father had a gun. It felt like the more I tried to dissuade him, the more he was determined that he could make my parents love him. In the end, I just came clean that I was not exactly ready for him to meet my parents, and he blew up on me. He talked about how I'd met his parents before we even became an item. I tried to explain that we were not from the same kind of background, but he wasn't very understanding and walked out on me. We made up eventually, but he did not stop insisting on meeting my family. Caught up in a post-reunion bliss, I agreed to set a date with my parents within the rest of the week that he would be around. I was a bundle of nerves as I sat my parents down to speak to them about setting the date. My father was pretty jolly, but my mother made a complete fuss, even refusing to eat dinner. I spent the rest of the night convincing her that I was still her little baby girl. 
For context, I was 24 years old at the time and living about two hours away from them. My father also had to promise her a new bag so that she would stop whining, but eventually she did. Fast forward to the night of the date, I had on a gorgeous new dress that he'd gotten me, a new pair of high heels, and the necklace his mother had gifted me. He wore a suit and picked me up in a rented limo, and I felt like prom all over again. We arrived at my house and D dove right in, showering my parents in compliments, an expensive bottle of wine, and a bracelet for my mother. As usual, mother was dressed in one of her hoochie dresses, and I noticed that she paid a lot of attention to him. A stark contrast to the screaming and crying mother that I'd spoken to about him barely a week before. I didn't mind it because I was just happy that my family and my boyfriend were getting along well. So well, in fact, that my mother insisted that he slept over at our place for the night. The next day, I woke up to my father back to work and my mother cooking my boyfriend breakfast in an almost see-through negligee. I ignored it because that was who she was. I should have realized that something was wrong when my lovely boyfriend decided on a whim to get a place permanently in the US, and even more when my mother offered him the guest room to sleep in until he was able to get his own place. But I was honestly just happy that our relationship wasn't going to be long distance anymore. Over the next couple of weeks, we lost a few co-workers at the vets and I had to pick up a few extra shifts at work. I assumed that it would also give D time to figure out his moving situation, although it started to feel like we hardly spoke or saw each other anymore. I missed them a lot and decided to drop by my family's home one day, but it seemed eerily empty, even though the doors weren't locked. I walked into the house and heard a familiar sort of grunting from my parents' bedroom. My initial thought was it was the parents just trying to spice things up because they did that a lot when I was in high school, and I walked in on them just about any and everywhere. But then the unmistakable Italian accent that my supposed boyfriend had echoed through the hallway and into my ears, shocking me. Blindly angry, I stormed in and found my mother on top of D, going at it so earnestly like she'd found some sort of magic that she couldn't get enough of. I was livid with anger and I screamed bloody murder, watching them as they scrambled off of each other, struggling to cover themselves up. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Storytime is sponsored by BetterHelp. Nearly everyone at some point in their life will struggle with their mental health, whether that's something stressful at work, in a personal relationship, or something else. I know that I really struggled with anxiety in my early 20s, and therapy was a massive help for me. That's why I'm a massive fan of therapy, and today's sponsor, BetterHelp. If there is anything in your life, big or small, that is negatively affecting you, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
It's an online therapy service that after finishing a small questionnaire will match you with a licensed therapist where you can book appointments that match up with your schedule at any place or any time. And if you feel like you're not bonding with your therapist, you can switch at any point for free. Also, therapy isn't just if you're struggling with mental health. If you're looking for guidance or ways to improve your social skills, life, or relationships, it's a great judgment-free way of doing that. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com StorytimePod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash StorytimePod. It took so many weeks of begging, a ton of gifts and money from both guilty parties, and numerous promises for me to begin talking to my mother and Dee again. I promised to keep their secret safe from my dad, if they only swore to stay away from each other. If he guessed that they didn't, you would be very correct. I don't know what it is that he saw in my mother, or why my mother decided to treat my father terribly, but I knew that I couldn't let it slide. I continued to act oblivious to their continuous affair, while leaving a small camcorder hidden inside an empty cupboard that faced the bed that they committed their atrocities on. When they weren't around, I would sneak in, change the batteries, and put the camera back. By the day of my parents' 25th marriage anniversary, I had compiled an entire short film, and I made sure to drink a lot too. Just after my congratulatory speech to my parents, I handed it to the DJ in the corner and took my seat, grinning with a satisfaction as the wanton sounds of my brother and boyfriend hooking up filled the entire room. I walked away from the venue teary-eyed, but feeling very accomplished by what I chose to do. It took quite the toll on me mentally, but with time I was able to move away from it and get into another relationship and even get married. My parents' relationship was never the same. Although they never got a divorce, my father didn't sleep in the same bed as my mother ever again. My mother and I also don't speak to each other anymore, but I don't regret a thing. I think that she deserved what she got completely. Do you guys think it's just overall creepy for OP to go and put the camcorder in the room and record it? Or considering how heartbreaking it is, do you not really blame them for doing that and exposing them the way they did? Is this just too far? Let me know what you guys think in the comments down below. And our final story of the day is struggling with both my food and my ex. As a child, I always loved shiny things. I enjoyed being praised and thanked and just noticed for every little thing I did, whether it was worthy of attention or not. Being the only girl and the last child among four kids made sure that I got whatever it was that I wanted. My parents had my brothers when they were in their 20s, and then I was a happy little mistake that came along when they turned 40. So they all treated me like the little princess that I was and gave me absolutely everything I asked for. As a kid, one of the other things I really, really loved was food. I was a rabid little thing, always looking for the next thing to eat. And nobody had it in their hearts to stop me from doing what I wanted. Instead, they would back and reward me with more snacks and candy. I mean, who could refuse me, an oversized and very adorable child, from doing what I wanted? It was a plus that I was pretty good most of the time and rarely gave any trouble, except of course when I was hungry and left unattended near the kitchen. Not that I intend to blame anyone, but now that I think back, maybe somebody should have supervised my eating when I started to get older. I understand that everybody was already pretty grown up, and the easiest way to stop me from getting in their way was to let me eat until I was in a food coma. But still, there should have been some sort of rule concerning my eating, seeing as I was a round ball of human that only kept getting rounder. 
I couldn't blame them though. My parents were first generation Russian immigrants. And as a Russian, being very chubby was the utmost sign of a very healthy child. I went through preschool and elementary school pretty normally, as a lot of my classmates at that time were just as chubby as me with baby fat, so I didn't stand out too much from everyone else. By the time I was transitioning into middle school, puberty had started for most kids my age and they were growing into their taller, prettier and more gangly selves. There were many emotions flying about and a lot of friendship groups had also started to turn more permanent, but I found myself alone more often. Being younger than most of my mates by two years made me a little isolated and since puberty hadn't hit for me, I didn't have a lot in common with my classmates anymore. It wouldn't have bothered me too much if my brothers were still loving and doting over me, but they were all done with college and had started to move on to their personal lives, leaving me alone with my pretty old and extremely busy parents. My oldest brother was already married, the brother right behind him, although he still lived at home, worked a lot and was soon to be married, while the brother that was directly older than me just moved to New York to pursue a career. I was lonely at home and my social life was also in shambles pretty much non-existent. It seemed like there was just one thing that could make me feel better, which was food. With barely anyone around to cook for me, I dug out my parents' cookbooks and began to learn to cook for myself, and by age 13, I was the one who made dinner for myself and my parents. At that age, I was already a freshman in high school, and I was also a loner. All of my friends were teachers who were pretty impressed by my academic record, but they were also adults with lives and responsibilities. Whatever relationships we had ended right after school, so it barely solved my loneliness issue. With no friends my age and no invites to any social activities outside school, I had no option but to get very good at my studies. I thought it would help me to make some friends if I joined clubs and engaged in school activities once in a while, but it didn't work. I was just the fat girl who showed off so much that she became the teacher's pet. The sadder I was, the more I turned to food, and by the time I was a junior in high school, I was a size 14. My parents only saw their beautiful and smart little girl, and no matter how busy they got, they never failed to let me know that, but I was too caught up in my own little head that I refused to acknowledge it or believe anything that they said. Even my brothers who lived far away had started to notice that I was no longer the happy little girl they knew. They called me a lot and had me visit during weekends and short holidays, but it wasn't enough to make me feel less depressed. With all my free time, I had the opportunity to volunteer at different clubs in school. My favorite was the journalism club because I had to use my brains more than any other body, which worked perfectly for me. Once I started to get properly acquainted, I found that I made friends a little easier. Most of the kids there were just as shy as me and soon we found that we had a lot in common. Before long, I went from having no friends to having four people that could relate to my pains and didn't make me feel like my body was a hindrance to them. They carried me along and I found myself being happy in their presence. One of them in particular was the boy that would later break my heart into a million tiny pieces, my ex. He was a charming boy with nice blonde hair, a pretty fit body, and a nice sense of style. I fell really quick. But I couldn't let it show because he was so much cooler, played soccer, and just so much more popular than me. I didn't think of it as anything when he asked me to hang out alone in the bleachers or when he brought me food. 
I mean, he was the president of the club, and maybe he did the same thing for others. I hid my feelings until he asked me to come to a soccer game, had a jersey with his name printed on the back personalized for me, and then kissed me after his team won the game. If that didn't scream, we're officially dating, then I don't know what else could. I was so smitten with my new relationship, but even more, I was obsessed with the new friends that I had. So obsessed that I didn't notice that they seemed fake and fickle despite how obvious it was. They always smiled at me, had their cameras out to film me, and laughed extra hard when I said or did anything. I thought it to be regular friend things. After all, I'd never had friends before, so I adjusted. I started to do whatever my ex wanted, sending risque photos despite being really self-conscious about myself, waking up super early to go jogging, and even eating a few times less than I usually did. He praised me for losing weight and that felt good, so I attached myself to it, completely disconnecting myself from my family. By senior year, I'd been with my ex for 11 months, dropped to a size 10, developed bulimia and a terrible binge eating habit and even more severe self-esteem issues. On prom night, my ex-boyfriend and his friends gathered on stage and killed a huge part of me with their behaviors. They had compiled all the videos they had taken of me over the past couple of months, all the intimate pictures I'd sent to him, and even my childhood pictures from my parents' Facebook, and played it for the entire school to see. After which he called me every insulting name imaginable and told me how terrible it had been prank dating me. He had a sneer on his face that was ingrained in my head for a while and I was horrified. I couldn't believe my luck and I walked all the way home teary-eyed but numb. My parents found out about it, but I begged them to let it go. High school was already over, and there was no need to make a fuss over something that couldn't be changed. Right after my graduation, I went to New York for uni, and I was set to stay with my older brother. He was pretty loaded by that time, so life was good for me. He put me up for therapy, and I started working out, but for myself this time, not just to lose weight. I studied journalism, and my brother was a big shot in the New York tech space, so getting a job wasn't hard at all. Along the line, I met a man who said he was a model scout, and told me I would make a lovely model. Because of my tainted body image, I turned him down politely. We still spoke for a while before he admitted to liking me, and asking me out on a date. Now, it had been a little over four years since I'd graduated high school, but I still had dating PTSD. I was hesitant, but the man was unrelenting and very sweet. He was also rich and showered me with gifts and affection until I fell for him as well. It was so different from my initial relationship, and I was really happy. There was an age gap of about 24 years, so he was nearly in his 50s, but he was a silver fox with a lot of hair and a very fit body, so he looked a little younger. I enjoyed my time with him and we had already begun to say I love you to each other by the third month of dating. Despite his age, my family also thought him to be lovely so we had their approval. I knew that he had an adult son who lived with his ex-wife and had been divorced since his son was three. He had never remarried since. One weekend, we were set to go to his place in the Hamptons but the weather was so bad that we decided to make it a staycation at his loft in New York. It was the first time I was at his place for longer than just staying the night, but I loved it. Bubble baths, hanging out, and he even cooked for me. 
We also shared some stories and I told him about my high school experience. He was loving, understanding, and apologized on behalf of the jerk, promising me that he would never do something like that. The next morning, he proposed to me, telling me that it was the reason we were to go to the Hamptons, but the weather ruined his plans. I was so happy that I started to cry, but I said yes, and we informed my family. I started to stay at his house more often, and one day, while I was snooping around, I found a picture of a face that made a lot of buried emotions resurface. I asked my fiancé, and he said that the person in the photo was his son. My ex was my fiancé's son. It hit me like a ton of bricks, because how could such a perfect man birth such a spawn of Satan? I was sad for a while, but then I jumped at the opportunity of revenge to make my ex pay. I started to talk about planning our wedding, and my fiancé was more than happy to get right into it with me. There was no elaborate engagement party or anything because we jumped straight to the rehearsal dinner when our families would meet for the first time. It was the most entertaining night of my life, watching my ex trying to figure out if he'd just been seeing things, or if I really was the one. He ogled at me the entire night, and when he could spare a second, he pulled me aside to demand that I stop seeing his father immediately. I let him rant until he was red in the face before putting him in his place. I wasn't upset or anything, just amused at the fact that he had the audacity to even speak to me after all that he and his friends put me through in high school. My fiancé confronted me after the dinner, and I let him know that his son was the jerk who broke my heart and ruined my reputation. He was understanding, very livid, and even agreed with me to help in my plan for revenge. We had the wedding at my fiancé's house in the Hamptons, a lovely and elegant wedding where my brother's girlfriend was my maid of honor and my ex was his father's best man. My family knew our story and it was hilarious to watch them scowl at my ex, making him visibly uncomfortable all through his father's wedding. Besides that, it went very well, and we had our honeymoon in Bali for three entire months. When we got back, we got news that my ex's mother had kicked him out due to some bad behavior, and he was pretty down on his luck. His father agreed to house him for six months while he tried to pick himself back up. I could tell that he was very uncomfortable seeing his father and I together, but he had to get used to it because I was here to stay. I fell pregnant barely six months into our marriage and my now husband was so excited that he forbade me from doing a lot of things until the baby was born. Because he still had to work, he made sure that my ex was at my beck and call, letting him know that it was either that or he would have to leave the house and find himself somewhere else to stay by. Nothing feels sweeter than revenge, especially if it's the kind of revenge where you can see the person's face. I know that my ex will feel weird for as long as he lives, and he also won't be able to talk about our situation to anyone, because how will he explain to the rest of the world that his father got married to his ex-girlfriend, who he treated like absolute crap in high school? It's a bit of a weird situation to be in, but one that is well-deserved. Honestly, I think the main thing that impresses me here is OP, despite how weird that situation is, never really seemed too bothered by the realization. Like, I feel like for a lot of people, finding this out would make them just full-on drop that relationship. For OP, though, it was the total opposite. It was like, let's turn this thing up to 11, let's go turbo. 
I just hope it reminds the son how much of a jerk they were back then, and every time they gotta help out OP, they think back to how much of a jerk they were, and they gotta think about where their life ended up, is I got revenge against my now ex-best friend. All of this happened in high school, when my ex-best friend and I were between the ages of 14 and 17. My most vivid memory from childhood was when my parents used to invite their friends over on the last Sunday of every month for dinner. I remember sneaking out of my bedroom to watch from the top of the stairs when they would eat and laugh together, and thinking about how I would do it with my own friend someday. Unfortunately, my parents got a divorce when I turned 7, and it led to a lot of issues for me, social anxiety being at the very top of the list. Now, if you don't know what social anxiety can do to a person, I'll give you a scenario. Imagine shaking like a leaf when asked a question, even if it's something as simple as your name. I was the shyest person wherever I went, and when people figured that out, they didn't even bother looking my way or speaking to me. As if it wasn't bad enough that I actually walked the school hallways on my own like a pathetic little person, they also started to bully me. It began in middle school when my classmates would make tiny little jabs at me in the hallways and call me weird names. It continued until sophomore year, then they graduated to making fun of me in the cafeteria and pushing me around. I learned my lesson and began to bring my own lunch to school and eat by myself under the bleachers. And it was incredibly peaceful for a few weeks until they found me again. When they saw me, they went out of their way to always corner me and be nasty, laughing when I would shake, quiver, and stutter in fear. One day, one of them got sick of asking me questions and getting no response, so he hit me across the face. I still remember like it happened yesterday when one of the most popular girls in school walked up to my bully and pushed him away, yelling a lot of curse words and causing a scene. Although I was very uncomfortable with the gathering crowd, it was the first time anyone had ever done anything like that for me, and my heart warmed immediately. It was one thing to just tell off someone, but watching her get so enraged at my bully made me think that maybe I would find a friend in her. My ex-bestie and I became good friends very fast, and it was like we complimented each other in the most stereotypical way possible. I was quiet, shy, and good at school, and she was outgoing, fun, and came late to nearly everything. Sooner than I expected, we became super cozy around each other, having sleepovers and dinner at each other's homes. Our mothers even started mingling more with each other. I loved having a best friend so much because it meant that I could do all the things I'd fantasized about from childhood. The sleepovers, sharing secrets, and giggling about boys. And I was determined to make sure that I was the best, best friend that anyone could ever ask for. Unfortunately, my obsession with the friendship that she and I shared made me completely blind to the fact that she never returned a lot of my sentiments. For example, she would barely speak to me during school hours, but then during lunch, she would pull me to a table with her popular friends and make me talk about things that I normally would only tell her. It was very discomforting for me, but I did whatever I could to make sure that she didn't get upset with me. I kept on telling myself that whatever things she put me through were the same things that every other pair of best friends went through. After all, I'd never had friends before, so how was I supposed to know? My ex-best friend and I were best friends from sophomore year until junior year, which was when things started to get really bad. I was used to having her as my utmost priority and being the last thing she thought of, and I'd worked out a good dynamic to make sure that I was exactly the person she needed me to be. Her servant, while also showing up to my classes early and participating in the few clubs I'd been courageous enough to join, 
It was a little stressful to combine, but I tried hard enough to keep my head above water and be there for her enough so we didn't fight. As we moved closer to senior year, I started to take school a little more seriously because I needed to get a scholarship and I didn't want anything ruining that one plan for me. My ex-best friend did not like that at all because it meant that I wouldn't be able to be her little tag-along anymore. She tried to guilt trip me into showing up to parties with her and entertaining her friends during lunch, and I refused every time she asked, because I always had something to do. It caused a huge rift between us, and no matter how much I try to apologize and make out time for us to hang out alone and do something that didn't include any of her other friends, we moved further apart. It hurt me a lot because she was supposed to be my best friend and support me in things I did. And even though I was used to being put last in the relationship, things had started to get to me. Our relationship remained strained, and it even got worse when I started to casually go out with the one boy that finally noticed me. He was cute, charming, and also a member of the chess club like me, so we had things in common and got along pretty well. My relationship with my new boyfriend felt a lot less draining than being around my best friend, and I started to learn what being respected really felt like. Still, I was desperate to save my friendship with a popular girl, so I decided to host a sleepover with her where we would talk about what had been going on in our lives, and then I would break the news about my relationship to her. It was the perfect plan, and so I got to work making all of her favorite snacks and picking out movies I knew she'd like. The day of the sleepover reached, and my best friend was nowhere to be found. She refused to answer any of my calls or texts, and I got really worried. I stayed up till it was really late, waiting for at least a message from her to say that she was safe, but I didn't get anything. It was nearly midnight when I realized that she probably wasn't coming, and decided to clean up and get ready for bed. To stop myself from crying, I went on Instagram, where I saw countless videos and pictures taken from her parents' house, where she apparently threw a party. I didn't realize when I started crying, until I couldn't see the pictures on my phone clearly anymore. I sobbed until there were no tears to cry anymore, and I eventually fell asleep. My boyfriend was very sweet and understanding about things, but I noticed that he'd kept defending her. It pissed me off, but I wasn't ready to fight with the only other friend that I had. So I took his suggestion and went to speak to her. When she spotted me, she feigned sadness, immediately going into a long winding story about how she had forgotten about the party and people had showed up to her house before she could make it out. She mentioned trying to leave, but realizing that she had to keep the house safe so that no one broke anything. The story seemed a little weird, because I knew that she didn't joke with her parties, but before I could point anything out, she had already started to shed tears. I believed her because it seemed like she really missed me, and we hugged and made up. She was really sweet to me for the rest of the week, and even set up another sleepover by herself. I was really excited for the sleepover, and we did all the stereotypical best friend sleepover things. By the time I'd eaten dinner and dessert, I was tired enough to fall asleep. That was my first mistake, leaving her wide awake and unsupervised in my room. The school year's end reached and we had to write exams. I tried to study with my boyfriend and best friend, but they made things a little slower for me, so I mainly studied on my own. The Friday before the week exams were supposed to begin, my ex-best friend called me into an empty classroom and locked the door behind us. She told me the exam papers had been delivered to a teacher and that she needed help getting just one of them. I immediately refused to help, 
letting her know that we could face serious penalties if we were even heard talking about it. She called me a prude and a few other very colorful names, but I still wasn't letting up. She then tried to coerce me softly, telling me how all the cool kids in school would want to be my friends and how they would forever be indebted to me. That almost got to me because she was using my own fear against me, but I stood my ground, firmly telling her no. She got upset and told me that I had just passed up the opportunity to make some more cool friends for myself and that I would regret it. We didn't speak to each other for a while after that. On the final day of exams, I got called into the principal's office and accused of leaking exam questions to my classmates. The very thing I'd been against doing in the first place. I tried to argue my case, but there was very little I could say when there was a suspicious amount of eyewitnesses confessing to having seen me. I had a good idea who pulled the elaborate stunt, but I forced myself not to think about it. As a punishment, I was banned from all the school events that were going to take place, and I had to do community service during the first month of summer school. Both my parents hosted an intervention for me, and after failing to get me to admit that I leaked the exam questions, they concluded that I was getting out of control and decided that they would ground me for the entire month as well. So, I wasn't doing very well. I spent the entire month by myself with minimal contact with the outside world. But not once did my boyfriend or my best friend even call me or try to visit. The month passed soon enough and I decided that I would confront my best friend about knowing that she lied against me. Coincidentally, she invited me to one of her summer parties and I thought it would be the best opportunity. From the second I entered into her parents' large mansion, I had a really bad feeling in my gut, so I would try to be quick. I thought I was paranoid until I walked into my best friend and my boyfriend kissing on the stairs. It broke my heart and I made to run away, but they spotted me. I wanted to go straight home and cry my eyes out, but they had other plans. They, alongside their other friends, cornered me right in the middle of the party. They that was supposed to be my best friend and the boy that had told me he loved me about a month and a half ago started to laugh and point fingers at me. Someone turned on a projector against the wall and a montage started to play. Images of me doing a lot of different and embarrassing things like putting on my retainers at night, just coming out of the bathroom half clothed and a lot of other things I would rather not mention played on a wall and I watched in pure horror. These were things that only my best friend and boyfriend could have gotten access to. There were pages from my diary as well, edited to say very incriminating things about people that I barely even know. I left the party shaking in anger and hurt, unable to understand my bad luck in choosing friends, but swearing to get these people back. I got a job and spent the rest of my summer either working or cooped up inside my house making my own plans. They forgot that being a quiet person meant that I saw and heard everything that went on around me, and my whole plan was to use that against them. After all, the best way to fight fire is with fire. When school was back in session, I went back as if nothing happened, becoming my quiet, loner self again. But this time, I was a loner with a mission. It was our senior year, and I wanted to begin with a bang. I started by submitting a footage of my ex-best friend changing her grades in the school computer that I intercepted from the tech club in school, and then alerting teachers every time that I spotted her and my ex-boyfriend together in the janitor's closet or an empty classroom. 
I also ratted their friends out one after the other, making sure that everything they had ever done in the dark came to light. By the end of the school year, my ex-best friend had been caught cheating during tests and exams so many times that she would either have to go back to junior year again or leave the school. Her parents had money, so of course they fixed it by changing schools, but most of her information was already out on the internet on an anonymous blog, so she would be very popular at whatever school she ended up going to. It's been a few years since I left high school, and I still don't feel bad about what I did to her. Instead, I look back and laugh about it because she deserved every single thing, and then some. I don't know much about how she's doing now, but I know that if she ever meets me again, she'll regret knowing me. This story kind of makes me think about how I felt sometimes growing up with friends. I had friends who were way more popular than I ever was, and sometimes I found myself thinking to myself, are they just friends with me out of pity? Do they just find it funny to hang around me, talk to me? Have you guys ever had like an internal monologue worrying about whether your friends or maybe your partner in a relationship actually have genuine feelings for you? Let me know about you guys in the comments down below. And our final story of the day is Trouble in Paradise. I'm the second child in a family of three, and my two other siblings are boys. We each have two years separating us, which means that we're very close in age. My little brother is the sweetest person ever super kind and thoughtful, and we're basically glued at the hip. So close that everyone thinks we're twins. My older brother is a jerk and has been since we were little children. He always liked to bully us and get us in trouble every chance that he had, unrelenting with terrorism no matter how much we begged. My theory was that he was very jealous of the relationship I and our little brother had, but he had too much pride to actually tell us that he wanted to be a part of all the things we did together. Instead, he decided he would be a nuisance and ruin whatever fun we had managed to create for ourselves. He didn't realize that he had slowly started to make us hate him, and by the time we were all adults, we didn't care for him much. It was especially annoying as our parents were very busy people who could not afford a babysitter, and they often left him in charge of us on a lot of weeknights. He took complete advantage of the little power he had, using whatever chances he had to separate and bully me and our little brother. I tried to stand in and fight when I could, but coming from a typical Korean immigrant family meant that I had to show respect to everyone older than me, no matter how irritating they were. We did try to report him to our parents, but when there was so much work to be done and money to be made, they told us that they didn't need the extra trouble. Plus, he was their golden child and it was his word over ours. Knowing that he wouldn't be listened to was a good way to get us to work on dealing with the situation ourselves and completely staying out of his way. When we got old enough, we took on afternoon jobs at the mall and spent nearly all of our time there. With no siblings in his way to pick on, my brother took his mean streak with him to school and became a tyrant, teasing the kids and even some teachers. He's really smart and got most of the good-looking genes, so it was a no-brainer that he was the favorite of a lot of people. My little brother and I grew up in his shadow, but we had each other, so it didn't matter much to us. Another thing about my big brother that he was well-known for was breaking hearts. He knew that he was really good-looking, so girls flocked to him like little birds, and he made sure to go through entire flocks. He once dated a whole group of friends and made them promise to be nice to each other. It was wild, but I never expected less of him. He was capable of getting away with everything, no matter how insane. Fortunately for him, he didn't peak in high school and then fall off completely like 
a lot of his friends who messed around with him in high school. He played football in high school, so he got a sports scholarship and went on to study chemical engineering at an Ivy League university, and it didn't take long for his reputation to precede him. He became the star quarterback and got what seemed like the entire cheerleading squad in college, and he was praised for it. Everyone knew who he was, and he was having the time of his life, being known and respected as that. After college, my older brother went off to the corporate world of New York to make a name for himself, while my little brother and I stayed back to finish community college and work a little closer to home. After two years in New York, our father passed away, and our older brother had to come back home for the funeral. He showed up, and my mother went from a mourning woman to a doting mom, cooking everything he asked for at the drop of a hat and treating him the same way she and my father used to when he was still living at home. I guess he enjoyed the attention a little too much because, after our father's funeral, he decided to take on remote work and move back home. I and our second brother thought it wouldn't be so bad because there was a chance he'd matured into a sensible person. But we were so wrong. He seems to have regressed, playing pranks like he never left high school, graduating to even hitting us as a joke. He never took responsibility for anything, messed the entire house up and always talked loudly to his friends about what girls he's currently sleeping with. As usual, both the younger siblings were made to go through it until they could properly adjust. We hoped that something would change soon, but we weren't prepared for how much we would enjoy it. As kids, our parents were friends with another family, and they had dinner at each other's homes whenever any of the adults could spare the time. The couple had just one daughter, we'll call her goth girl, and she and I became pretty good friends, considering she was an only child and I was the only girl in my family. We didn't have much in common, but we managed to put that aside and have fun together anyway. The name goth girl is pretty self-explanatory, because she was always wearing dark colored clothes, listened to mostly metal alternative music, and had an array of ear piercings. From the day our parents introduced us to each other till adulthood, I'd seen her wear light colors barely even a handful of times. She had a very intense and intimidating aura that only went away when she was with me because we were basically best friends and she could be completely herself with me. For some reason, she was the only girl that my older brother hadn't dared approach. He barely even spoke to her and if he had to, he stuttered so badly that he would just give up. It was pretty obvious to everyone that he liked her, but my brother would rather run and hide than speak to her. It was hilarious to watch, knowing the kind of person he was, and seeing that their personalities were so different. I was convinced that nothing could ever happen between that. But I was so surprised to come home from work one day to find goth girl and my older brother half naked and tangled up on the couch. It was hilarious, and I made sure to tease them about it every chance I got. It was a confusing dynamic. My sweet, artsy, dark friend who hid her nice nature from the world with a resting witch face and dark lipstick, dating my misogynistic jerk of a brother. But it was a very interesting one nevertheless. I tried to talk her out of it, but she assured me that she knew what she was doing. I knew there would be a change in my big brother, but I just didn't think it would be so soon or so dramatic. He went from an annoying, brash jerk to a moderately well-behaved person whenever goth girl was around. He seemed to be completely smitten and did everything that she asked of him, which included purposely being nice to his family and doing things for our mother instead of having her do things for him. Even our mother noticed the change in her favorite son 
and she appreciated it. Goth girl was a person with a very strong personality, and so was my brother. At first, it was really cute watching them bicker over small things, and then he would give in to whatever request she had. But with time, the fight started to become more serious. Big Brother must have gotten sick of trying to do right by his girlfriend all the time, so he attempted to begin treating her the same way he treated all the girls he dated before, which was his first mistake. I attempted to warn him because I knew that it would not end well, but he asked me to mind my own business and stay out of things that concerned him, so I did. My older brother started to cheat on his girlfriend with one of his many exes from high school, and almost immediately goth girl found out. She came over to the house and they had a big fight about it, but she didn't break up with him as expected. Instead, they fixed the situation and were good again for a while. Until my brother would be his usual self and relapse into cheating, the relationship became really toxic after barely a year of them being together, and everyone wondered why she didn't just up and leave him. I asked her, and she informed me that she intended to teach my brother a lesson that he would never forget. She expected me to be protective of him and ask her questions, but I just nodded. My brother was the biggest jerk I knew. Whatever she would do to him, I knew that he deserved it. My little brother's college graduation soon came up, and I decided to gift him with a trip for two to LA for a week. He chose me as his plus one, and I was really excited. Somehow, goth girl got some information about my plans, and she also booked a getaway for her and my older brother to the same place. I mean, down to the hotel even. It pissed me off because I wanted my little brother to have a good time. And with our older brother there, it seemed actually impossible. When I brought it up, she promised me that we would barely even hear a peep from them. True to her word, my little brother and I actually had a good week. And when it was time to catch the flight back home, goth girl emerged with a huge rock on her ring finger and a glowing grin. My brother had proposed. It was a huge shock factor for my little brother and me, and then everyone else, seeing this couple that we had seen fight all the time, now engaged and excited to be married. They even started acting like a new couple again, being all romantic to each other. Two months later, goth girl dropped a bomb on us, she was pregnant. The wedding immediately started being planned, and it felt like things were moving too fast. I wanted to ask a couple of questions, but I'd been told once already by my brother to mind my business when it came to his life. So I did just that. They planned a whole wedding and executed it successfully in less than a month, and my brother seemed very happy with the arrangement. He allowed goth girl to do whatever she wanted, becoming the stereotypical husband figure and seemingly maturing in the span of only a couple of months. After the wedding had taken place in the spring, they moved to New York together and stayed there for a couple of months, and had zero contact with us back home. That was until late on a chilly autumn evening in November when my brother called, drunkenly yelling that goth girl had kicked him out of their shared apartment. There seemed to be trouble in paradise, but I was unable to reach anyone properly until the next couple of days. My brother seemed miserable talking about how goth girl had started to treat him badly. From his explanation though, we figured out that he was just upset that the honeymoon phase was over, and his wife was only being mean to him because he was being irresponsible and had started cheating again. When he realized that I wouldn't be on his side, he tried to get our mother involved and she was quick to respond to him, hopping on the first flight she could find in New York. 
She returned home with her tail tucked between her legs two days later, and although she never said what actually happened, I felt very proud that someone finally stood up to her. My older brother's marriage fell apart pretty soon after we found out that goth girl was never pregnant. By then, she'd gotten complete access and control of all of his accounts, so she emptied his bank accounts whenever she pleased. He tried really hard to get her to hand over his possessions, and when she didn't, he filed for divorce. It seems a little mean, and maybe even heartless of us, but the entire time we were present in the court, my little brother and I rooted for goth girl. We knew that she was exaggerating a lot of the things she said, but she had a lot of evidence that incriminated our brother, and he had no way of getting himself out of it. She ended up winning the case, taking a huge amount of money, as well as a spousal allowance, for the next five years. Goth Girl and I got even closer after the divorce, and I felt very satisfied with the treatment she gave my brother. He was a terror to us growing up, and I knew that I'd never have it in me to take revenge. So, she did two people a very big favor. Goth Girl went the good old gold digger route. They did the long con. How much do you want to bet that the moment they got involved, this was always going to be their exit plan? They saw some big shot that had a nice job working remotely making some decent cash, and they said, I want to walk away with half of that, and some third grade bully. In the third grade, I was an awkward kid, had a mean drunk father, struggled to fit in and make friends, was bullied and shunned by the other kids. One of my classmates, let's call him Derek, who regularly partook in bullying me, showed me kindness one day. Being deprived of kindness or attention so regularly, I was putty in his hands. He hanged out with me during recess when I was usually alone. We laughed and talked about girls we like. He even apologized for being a jerk to me. The reason he was nice to me was because I'd brought a very popular, expensive Batman action figure to school with me to pass the time, since I was alone mostly. I saved allowance and mowed lawns for two months to buy that toy. Everyone wanted one. By the end of the day, he asked me if he could lend the action figure, and like the naive, socially inept kid I was, I trusted him with it. The deal was to return it the following morning. I went home so happy, completely fooled, I never suspected a thing. The following day, he completely ignored me. When I tried to talk to him, he acted like I was crazy. When I asked him to return the action figure, he simply said, You never gave me any bad man, maybe you imagined it. And when I persisted, he threatened to beat my butt. When I complained to my teacher, I was told that it was my own fault for bringing toys to school. I was afraid they would involve my father, so I dropped it. I couldn't let my father know or I would be called a softy and have my butt beat and punished for the next two weeks. What's worse is Derek told all the girls that I confided to him about fancying, that I lusted after them and that I pleased myself to them. I was a social outcast before that, but at least I was tolerated. But after his smear campaign with the girls, I was a leper. People wouldn't even look me in the eyes, not even the teachers. Kids started throwing stones at me, sabotaged and vandalized my property. It was heck. I did nothing about it but cry. I was just a weak-willed kid after all, but to this day, I wish I'd bit someone's ear off or something. Anything in retaliation. After a while, the bullying died down. I focused on my studies and started getting good grades. Derek started talking to me again, but I ignored him completely. Sometimes he would repeat, Why are you being such a baby? You didn't give me anything. You imagined it. 
By the end of the year, we moved houses and I transferred to another school not far away. Things were much better there. I finally had friends and I wasn't as naive anymore so I wasn't as easily targeted. But I was still mostly me and still got picked on now and then. Over the years I became somewhat of a delinquent and in high school I got into regular fights. I may have been overcompensating for the lack of a spine I had in my younger years. I bartended in nightclubs, hotels, and cruise liners in my early 20s. This helped me a lot to be more socially adept and to understand social dynamics and human nature. I finished trade school and qualified as an electrician and later as a plumber. I know, water and electricity, but believe it or not, I thought it was ingenious at the time. I started my own business, developed a reputation for excellent worksmanship in my local area, and did well for myself. When I was 29, I'm 36 now, I received a call out at 2 in the morning for a flooding emergency at a local residence. When I got there, the place was a mess. Water was jetting out of a burst pipe and electrical equipment was shorted. It was highly dangerous. The living room floor was caved in due to a sinkhole. I was met by the wife, let's call her Jane, hysterical and beside herself. She somehow thought that she was responsible, which I found odd. I assured her that it couldn't possibly be her fault. He arrived not five minutes later. His demeanor was irate. He didn't greet or shake my hand when I offered. I recognized him immediately, Derek from all those years ago. He demanded to know why I haven't begun fixing the issue yet. I was professional. I told him what I told the wife in terms of costs, but I hid the written quote in my vehicle. I told him who I was and acted happy to see him, assured him that he was in good hands. After a while of arguing with his wife, he seemed to calm down and joke around with me. I knew I had fooled him. We talked about our careers, kids, our school days. I gave him tips and fake recommendations. We got along great, his trust was easy to gain. He must have thought of me as a complete sucker. I assured him that he was in good hands and this would be fixed in no time. I was careful not to start any actual work on the property. Doing the smallest thing would make me responsible for all of it. Derek left after an hour or so and his wife stayed behind. I started my revenge. When I was doing my assessment, I noticed that most of the building did not comply with city regulation and did not adhere to the registered and approved plans. There were multiple safety hazards and all the plumbing and electrical work were completed by unqualified and uncertified people in an attempt to save money. Also, the pipe in question had been leaking for a few weeks at least, getting worse by the day, and finally causing disaster, which means their water bill would be astronomical at the end of the month, unless a qualified plumber endorses a rebate with the municipality. I called my contact at the city, let's call him Donovan, and notified him of all the regulatory violations, safety hazards, and non-city compliant installations on the property. I also told him of the possible water bill. He promised to be there the next day. I immediately started photographing and documenting. The following morning, my contact was there at 10. He had a field day. He informed Derek's wife of the calamity that was to come. They would be forced to tear down all of the building additions, remove all the uncertified plumbing and wiring installations, have the plans reapproved and start from scratch, which is an estimated loss of approximately 950,000. Derek was there in minutes. He was livid. 
He quickly threatened legal action, but Donovan simply told him that he had more than enough photograph evidence to have the property declared invalid within a week if Derek did not comply in writing. Donovan reminded Derek that he does this for a living and that the city has more legal resources to waste money on. I left Derek an invoice for my time just to smear salt in the wound and took my leave. Later, he called me and called me every name under the sun. I remained silent and he hung up. He went on a Facebook rant about me, which was a bad idea. All of the community stood up for me and it started a storytelling competition where all kinds of people revealed stories of unsavory things Derek did to them in the past. Apparently, Derek has always been a jerk. He never changed. One day, he called me and asked to meet. He sounded defeated and depressed, so I decided to meet and see what's up. I met him at a local busy convenience store. I know better than to take Derek the weasel at face value, so I noticed quickly when he laid his phone screen down on the table. I knew he may be recording the conversation. He apologized for his behavior, which surprised me, and told me that this whole dilemma has all but bankrupt him. He told me he took out a loan for the building additions and cut corners to save money, that everyone does it. He showed me the water bill, which was nearly 80000 a problem easily erased with a qualified plumber's signature and endorsement. I refused. He got irate again. Then he asked me, Why did you do this to me? I know I was a jerk to you when we were kids, but I don't deserve to have my and my wife's lives ruined because of mistakes I made when I was a kid. What kind of person are you? You told me I was in good hands. I trusted you. You assured me you would help me, and then you stabbed me in the back. You quoted me only a few hundred and told me not to worry. I replied, I said no such thing. He says, stop lying. You told me that it would cost a few hundred, maybe less. I heard you say it. You promised to help me, gave me recommendations. Why are you doing this to me? I said, Derek, you must have imagined it. I said, Derek, you must have imagined it. I looked him in the eye. He knew exactly why I said that the same thing he told me almost 20 years ago. I repeated it just to drive it home. You're being a baby. I never quoted you for anything. You imagined it. He knew I was destroying him financially because of a Batman action figure he stole from me 20 years ago. I could see it in his eyes, but he couldn't bring himself to say it. His expression was a mixture of astonishment and disgust. I looked him dead in the eyes for a few seconds for effect, then got up and left. I slept like a baby that night and had a goofy smile all week after. He tried calling a few times, but I sent him a text stating that further harassment will be met with legal action. Derek, you know what your real name is and what mine is. If in the future you read this and realize how I screwed you over, Remember how costly that little Batman action figure was to you after years of accumulated interest in karma. The look of despair on your face when you realize why you are ruined was delicious. I cackled maniacally on that drive home from that convenience store. It was time for you to pay the piper. And if you think this will help you legally, go ahead and try. It won't, so don't waste your time. Or rather do, waste as much time and money. I welcome being even more of a financial inconvenience to your life. Freak you, Derek. Do you guys think OP went a little far with the revenge here? Or do you think the 20 years of bullying PTSD that OP had to deal with made it more than worth it? 
Let me know what you guys think down in the comments below. And by the way, if you're enjoying these stories, make sure to hit those like and subscribe buttons as well. Our next story is Old Fart Gets His Revenge. Revenge-tastic. This story was from my grandpa who knew this guy when he was growing up in the 1960s. So we'll call this guy Henry. He was old as crap when this story took place. In New Mexico in the early 1960s, Henry owned a decent-sized ranch. Now Henry was a cool dude. In his younger days, he fought in World War I and was rumored to be a gunfighter in the last days of the Wild West. He was also rumored to be associated with the Mafia in Chicago in the 1920s when he went to college. Henry had about 15 ranch hands and three sons. He had lots of cattle and land. His youngest son was in the army at this point in time, and the other two had other jobs. A lot of his ranch hands were black, and some were refugees fleeing racial violence in the east at that time. So one evening, his guys were attacked and beaten up, and a couple of his cows were killed by unknown attackers. But it was pretty obvious it was the guys in the white pointy hats. After assessing the situation, he couldn't really do much, and the police were useless as the town police force was pretty much useless as it had like two guys. These attacks continued for a couple of weeks. No one was beat up, but some cows were killed and fences and stuff were destroyed. Henry received a note saying that he had to get rid of all of his black workers by the end of the week, or they were going to burn down his ranch and kill everyone and everything. So he kind of said, screw this, and called his son, who just happened to be on leave. His son and a couple of his army buddies were on leave, and they pretty much had nothing else to do but come over. He was also really good friends with a biker gang in the area who he probably helped hide bodies on his land with, so they come over and helped him prepare. No, he didn't want the police involved as he was an old freak and did things the old-fashioned way. So he sent a couple of ranch hands over to the town to get drunk and distract the police, and he would bail them out in the morning. Basically, it was two underpaid cops trying to contain the drunken madness in a bar in a small town in the middle of the New Mexico desert. So one night, the white pointy hat guys pulled up ready to trash the place. The remaining ranch hands were having a bonfire and seemed completely oblivious to their impending doom. They were strapped though. Henry had his son and his buddies and the bikers hidden in the barns and sheds ready to attack. When the pointy hat guys showed up, they had gasoline cans and some weapons. There were about 10 of them. Basically, it plays out that the cowboys all acted drunk until the bikers and soldiers showed up and surrounded the pointy hat guys, and then they pulled their guns out. Now, I never heard if anyone was killed or if he just gave them a good scare, but there hasn't been a single racial incident or animal murdered in that town since then. Also, Henry died a couple of years later from cancer, probably because he smoked and dipped for like 60 years because it was healthy back then. Anyway, Grandpa was cool, and he knew a lot of cool guys like Henry. I'm not gonna lie, I'm sure there's a mountain of stories that happened, both in 1920s Chicago and also in the New Mexico desert, that honestly we'll just never hear about, and the ones that we do hear? They're kind of really crazy. But I mean, I guess that's how it was out there with so few people around and a lot less policing and connectivity. This next story is Betray Me? Welcome to heck. I, 40s, dated a man, 35, for less than a year. I met him here on Reddit. It was serious, intense, and fast. I love yous, proposed marriage, the whole shebang. I was all the way in. 
He ended it out of the blue one day a couple of months back. What he said prompted my sixth sense to go positively crazy. I did a tiny bit of research and poof, there is his very married self and his lovely wife, 30, on Facebook of all places. Yes, I'm stupid. He told me he was divorced. You're supposed to trust the people you love, right? I confronted him, told his wife, then went into shock. Turns out I'm one of at least 100 women he slept with or been in a full-blown relationship with in the full decade he's been with his wife, married only three years. Many of them have contacted her over the years. She shrugs and stays. She tracks his GPS, sees he's cheating or had the feeling that something is wrong and does nothing. He shows no remorse. One thing he texted me when I confronted him was, I was just supposed to freak you then leave. I didn't. He was in my city for almost four months for a job, several states away from home. He told his wife I was only his girlfriend in her mind. That crushed me. The cold cancellation, I'll never get past it. Apart from the betrayal, there was also the grooming, and I don't mean sexually, he was effortlessly abusive. He manipulated me from day one. I'm a lot like his wife. Same body type, deeply loving, attachment issues, forgiving, empathetic caretakers. Women like us are often safe harbors for broken men. Never the freak again. Never betray a woman with a healthy sense of justice who also wanted to be a private investigator as a kid. The revenge. Publicize, demonize, fire. I started a Facebook page, screenshots of so many indiscretions, a full narrative on just how messed up he is. I sent links to 10 family members, spoke with three, the jig is up. They had no idea about the cheating, the lying, the atrocious behavior. So far, my favorite part? I got him so fired. Emails to HR, legal, his boss, his boss's boss, and of course I CC'd him. Screenshots of him badmouthing them, wanting to sleep with subordinates, drug use, hidden DUI, his temper, all of it. Anything that he won, did or said, and two, would get him fired. The things I sent to his job? One, the text of a long post on Facebook detailing how freaked up he is with all the specifics. Mental illness, cheating, etc. I sent the link to this post and my profile to many, 10 total, close family members. Most didn't open or read the messages. I deleted slashed indent the ones who hadn't seen it. His wife's longtime best friend talked to me. She had no idea about most of his actions. I emailed the text of the post to HR, legal, his boss, etc. Two, links to posted text screenshots of his bullcrap on the Facebook page. 3. I emailed screenshots of text messages detailing the following to HR, legal, etc. 1. His DUI. His second that he had in January that he hid from the company. 2. Screenshots proving he slept with a contractor and housed her in his hotel during the job. That might be fraud if they were expensing both his room and her room. I didn't mention that in any email. 3. Screenshots of his lost weekend doing coke and ecstasy. I do none of that and was horrified I couldn't contact him those days. He disappeared for two days, when he would have been working on the job site. 4. Screenshots of describing how much he hated his boss, executives, co-workers, because they were all idiots. 5. Screenshots of his violent temper, where he apologized for yelling at me and others. 6. Screenshots of text talking about how he should quit and take the two friends he had there with him. 
7. Screenshots of texts where he talks crap about the CEO. 8. Screenshots of his dating profiles and company-branded clothing. And 9. Text screenshots of him detailing how hard it is not to lash out and be mean to people. Depression, mental illness. He's a traveling project manager for an engineering firm, and he's a mess. But it was a slow trickle seeing all of this behavior. He's been doing this work since 2005, moving his way up the ladder to the low six-figure salary he used to earn. Sometimes he's in a city for four months, sometimes a few weeks, almost always west of the Mississippi. He lives in the South. Today, I read an email sent to me last week confirming he's fired. I jumped for joy. The goal? Go home. Stop lying to women. Why does this matter? Why does he need to stop traveling all the time and go home? Because his job is everything to him. He travels 90% of the year. He hides in it. He uses it as a weapon against his wife, so many women, and against any accountability. He said this verbatim in texts. He loves the work he does more than almost anything in the world. It's his only escape and relief, and the only thing he's good at. Losing the job is the nuclear option, short of hospitalization. He's home now, trapped, no more freedom to use, and abuse women at will with no consequences. He's furious. Good. He knows it was me. Good. But he'll just find another job, you say? Oh, I'm counting on it. That's phase two. I'll email them too. And the company after that. And the company after that. It's a pretty simple email. Just gotta press send. If he changes and becomes a decent human being, great. Too late. Enjoy this destruction you brought upon yourself. This is for all the previous girlfriends you messed over. Moi. The Facebook page is still up and will remain visible for now. No, I'm not going to post the link. Too much identifying information. I don't want to destroy his family. I want him to stop hurting women. I'm hoping this will 1. really upset him and 2. spook him into getting help. One of the last things he said after I confronted him was, I know how this ends. Meaning his wife will never leave him and he'll face no consequences. Think again, kid. Honestly, I support OP fully. I'm of the opinion that if you get into a situation with somebody else where you're saying you're committed to them, you express that you love them, and you turn out to be leading them on, and you turn out to be this vile serial cheater, this dude was super scummy, has some serious issues, and considering the sheer number of women he backstabbed, you can't say they didn't have it coming. Somebody was going to do something, and that somebody was OP. Our next story is a man harassed me, and I got his retirement benefits taken away. So this took place over three years, give or take some. I, 29-year-old female, left the military and picked up a contracting job in the same field. While I was starting my new career, I was also leaving an unhappy and abusive marriage. My ex-husband, 29-year-old male, was a store manager at a GameStop, and when asked if he gave military discounts, he would give military discounts and ask if people knew me on base and what I was up to. A man will call Bubble Bass, 35-ish year old male, actually worked for me and the two of them bonded over their mutual hate for women. Bubble Bass would refer to me as a tramp and tramp at work, and even went so far as to attempt to get my home address to give to my ex. I reported the incidents through proper channels and had to get a new apartment, but unsurprisingly the military did nothing to Bubble Bass, so I decided to keep my eyes on him and wait until he made another misstep. Over the next three years, working with him was horrible. 
He would undermine my authority in the section by telling junior people I was stupid, being intentionally insubordinate, and publicly talking about how he was exploiting the foster care system to make money off the children he was supposed to be taking care of. About a year ago now, another girl, 20-year-old female, came to me and told me that Bubble Bass was approaching her in a way that made her uncomfortable. When I pulled up their chat logs, Bubble Bass was begging her to hook up with him even though he was married and she was repeatedly telling him she wasn't interested. I convinced the girl to report Bubble Bass despite her hesitation. During the investigation, while I was interviewed, I spared no detail about what exactly Bubble Bass was doing and saying to include fraud, waste, and abuse of government assets and systems. I kept a literal crap list with dates and times. As things turned out, there were about four other women at our base Bubble Bass was sexually harassing. Bubble Bass went to non-judicial punishment this week and lost everything. He has 18 years in the military and was two years away from a full retirement. He lost his clearance. He lost his foster children. He lost his honorable discharge. He is literally starting life over in his 30s with a discharge that shows he sexually harasses women with no benefits and 18 years of training in a job field that's only relevant if he has a clearance. I have no sympathy for a creep like this who's trying to prey on young girls. This dude's halfway through his 30s and he's trying to pressure some 20 year old girl who's clearly uncomfortable and wants nothing to do with any of this, but had to be convinced to report it. This dude was just creepy and preying on people, and they flat out deserved losing what they did. Our next story is my grandmother almost killed my mother's first fiancé. My grandmother told me this story and I wanted to share. This all happened in 1985, so this was before security cameras were a household thing. Plus, this happened in Bumfreak, Georgia. My grandmother Clara told me that when my mom, Angela, turned 19, she got engaged to a man. Richard, his actual name by the way. Clara noticed that he was very controlling, i.e. she couldn't use a phone, the landline, and he forbid her from going to family events. Clara's final straw was when my mom called her in the middle of the night crying saying she couldn't do it anymore and that he'd been hurting her. By this point they'd been together for almost two years and had my older brother. Clara told my mom to go to my great-grandfather's house and stay there, but tell Richard that she was going to her house. My mom did as she was asked and Clara waited for him. He eventually came in the middle of the night, yelling that Angela needed to come home and stop acting like a child. Clara told Richard that she was inside. He went in, and Clara came in behind him and hit him over the head with a bat that she had set beside the inside of the door. Richard fell to the floor, and Clara hit him several times in the legs and arms, breaking one of his arms and fracturing a rib. When she was done, she told him never to come near her daughter or he would be in a ditch next. He never came back. Pretty sure he burned my mom's stuff, but she didn't care. I definitely think this took place kind of in the olden days, or at least, you know, a while back. If this happened in more modern times, as much as the guy might have deserved it, I don't think it would have ended as cleanly for Clara as it did here. And our final story of the day is dad breaks into our house, we make his life heck. My dad is not a good person by any means of the word and this is going to involve some serious trauma. The characters are dad, the worst father of all time, mom, biological, Ryan, my twin brother, Keon, my older sister, and Dusty, my stepfather. The before, way back when Keon was born, 
dad had already fallen off the wagon. The first thing he ever did was physically force mom into doing drugs to make sure she stayed with him. Following her birth, things only got worse. While mom would do what she could, dad was not happy about having a kid. He'd lock Keon in her room for days at a time. Because, obviously, you can't make meth while hearing how hungry your child is. Two years later, mom was pregnant with Ryan and me. She immediately tried quitting the drugs and had some success, but having meth in our system, we were at serious risk. Ryan and I were born with huge complications. Premature, barely breathing, and weakened immune systems. After that came the worst few months for mom to endure. While having one kid made dad angry... Having three made him fly completely off the handle. It was at this time mom made the hard decision to call the Department of Children and Families on herself. She knew we weren't safe and wanted a way for us to escape this situation. Mom willfully signed away her rights to us, and dad of course wanted to fight. Both were arrested for child abuse and endangerment, don't cook meth with kids in the house, as well as the drugs. It took four years and hundreds of letters for mom to get into rehab. As this was happening, my siblings and I lived with our grandmother, who we grew up calling mom. My grandmother had no intention on fully adopting us, but she was left with little choice after a few years. It was either adopt us, or we would be taken into the Department of Children and Families' care. Life was better for us mostly, there's a reason I never mentioned my adoptive father, and we were safe. After a few years in rehab, mom was able to get back in touch with us. She was welcomed and I ended up crying because I found out my adoptive mom wasn't my real mom. We did get to leave kindergarten early the day she came home though. We grew as a family and it was good. After a few years of this, my adoptive father left the picture. Now everything is actually great. My grandmother passed away in 2017. This was hard for everybody but especially for mom. She was devastated, losing the one person who believed she could become clean, a good person, and a great mother. Now, dad gets out of prison and goes back in every few years, and he usually tries to get in touch when he does. This year was different. We didn't have our grandma to make sure everything would stay safe, and mom didn't think she could handle seeing him. The mistake? The day comes to bury my grandmother. It was a particularly warm November day. We're all having a hard time and don't deal with grief too well. I stayed with mom the entire time while Ryan went to our other grandparents to help out. Keon stayed in her room the whole time. We occasionally checked in on her. Night falls and we're looking through old pictures of grandma. We were finally able to stop crying. That is, until we hear some heavy banging on our door, followed by it swinging open and in walks dad. He goes straight to Keon's room and mom is simply frozen. This is the first time I've ever seen her this way. He eventually leaves on his own after some screaming and making Keon cry. He ended up taking her money and then hitting her. Dusty's already called the police already. We have a police scanner. Dusty's been outside the whole time, and as soon as Dad left, he went to confront him. Mom had to snap herself out of that frozen state and called Dusty inside. She didn't know if Dad was armed or anything and didn't want to take any chances. Dad goes across the street and pulls stuff out of his pocket as the cops pull up. He was dumping his bath salts right in front of the cops. He ends up getting arrested and we get a restraining order. That's not the last we see of him though. Over the next few years, we hatch a plan to make sure he regrets ever threatening our family again. The plan? The plan we managed to come up with was initially supposed to be petty and mildly inconvenient, but it ended up being so much more. 
we were just going to call the police every week or so on him, if he had something he wasn't supposed to have, back to jail. This didn't work out as planned and the turnout was much more severe. Dad gets out of prison and lives with his mom. Now, the problem with this is that we regularly go visit our grandparents, which means he'd either have to leave or we couldn't go. I'm going to call my other grandma Nana to keep things more coherent. Nana would always make him leave if we came over, no matter what temperature, time, or weather conditions. This would also apply to whenever we stay the night. We visited Nana so much after knowing what she'd do to see us, this was just our way of saying screw you to our dad. The thing about this meant that he was essentially homeless. He didn't have a car and could barely find a job. When a job did hire him, he'd post in or Nana would tell us. We'd give them a call and have them do a drug test. He always failed the drug tests. So now he's essentially homeless, having the police called on him and on drugs. He gets tired of this pretty quickly and goes back to Nana's when we're there. A clear violation of the restraining order, so he gets fined. This isn't a meager amount of money either. This ruined his savings. So now he's also broke and got kicked out of Nana's. Now he starts to realize he's pretty screwed. We call the police for a suspicious man sleeping on the sidewalk, and he had drugs on him, back to jail. At least he had a bed. After a few times of this, he's finally broken, devoid of all hope. He manages to get Nana to let him stay there again, so now we get more updates. This has been going on for months now, and we weren't going to stop. Job gone, home gone, money gone, drugs gone, hope gone. He actually started to be clean for a bit. Hard to get drugs if you can't buy them, and when you do, they immediately get confiscated. That is, until he finds a new woman, he gets back on the drugs thanks to her money. So, what do we do? Get her arrested while he's gone. We're being extra careful not to get him arrested anymore, since he'd end up in federal prison this time. After so many times getting caught with drugs, our state sends them to federal. Now we've taken away his girlfriend too. The effect. All of this has worn him down. He's gone. Anytime he'd regain even a tiny bit of hope, we'd snuff it out. He eventually tries to end things with a gun that he's not supposed to have, and he fails. So now we have to watch him suffer in the hospital while knowing he gets taken to prison as soon as he heals. We had to make things worse for him. We couldn't let the times we didn't call the police go unnoticed after all. We hide some drugs and ingredients in his dresser. Easily noticeable when the police come to search. He now has quite a while in federal prison. I don't think I have any room to comment on this other than saying that this certainly was a nuclear revenge. Twin trouble. I'm a 27 year old female and I have a twin sister. We're identical twins who were born exactly 13 seconds after each other. She always says it counts, but I don't think it does. So we've pretty much been attached to the hip from birth. Before we were even born, the scan showed us as one child, with one synchronized heartbeat and one of each body part. You can imagine the shock when my mother started to push and birthed two girls instead of one. She used to joke that we were one soul divided into two people, and we genuinely did believe it. Both of our first names start with M, so we've always been called M&M, like the chocolate, by family and friends. It started when we got into kindergarten and continued through elementary and high school. We were never apart for long because I couldn't function without her and she didn't speak to anyone unless I was around. 
My mother used to always say that it was much harder to tell us apart when we were little because we were born tricksters. We would answer each other's names and exchange clothes when she wasn't watching, just so she wouldn't realize who was who. Of course, she was her mother, so she knew, but every now and then she would play along just to entertain us. Besides our parents, no one else could tell us apart. We were dark-haired, green-eyed girls who spoke in a language that no one else could understand. My twin sister and I were so inseparable that we never left each other's side. We slept in the same beds, walked together everywhere, and we even fell sick together. If I broke my arm, my sister felt the pain just as intensely as I did, and vice versa. I knew what she was thinking because it was what I thought about too, and we always completed each other's sentences. Up until high school, people could barely tell us apart. We dressed identical, sat beside each other all the time, and just when a teacher or a classmate thought they'd figured us out, we tricked them by pretending to be each other. Having a twin was amazing because it felt like having two of myself. In our senior year, my sister had a crush on a boy. It felt strange because it was the first time both of us had ever had an emotion that wasn't collective to us both, and I was livid. I tried to disrupt her emotions as much as I could, but my sister was a little more strong-willed than me, so she didn't listen to me. After talking to my mother about the situation, she advised me to allow my sister to live her life, because as much as it felt like we were the same person, we really were not. In order to allow my sister to be happy with her now boyfriend, I began to dress differently from her. Not so much that it was painfully obvious to everyone, but enough that he could tell us apart. I felt like a third wheel, going everywhere with my sister and her boyfriend, so I also started to detach. This meant that I spent less time with my twin sister and more time alone. It felt similar to heartbreak, what I felt after we drifted apart, but at least it made more room for me to make other friends. I soon became close with the girl that would become my second best friend, let's call her Z. It wasn't the same as having my sister around me, but Z was a really good friend and I enjoyed having her around. It was even better that she planned to go to the same college as my sister and I, so I knew that we would be friends for a while. Z and I got so close that I stopped feeling like such a bother to my sister, but it also meant that I didn't notice when my sister and her boyfriend went through a breakup. I found out two weeks after it happened because our mother casually said it at dinner, and I felt so hurt that my sister hadn't told me. That was the first big fight that we had and she made it seem like it was all my fault for not paying any attention to her. We didn't speak to each other for two weeks, only starting to talk again because our mother threatened us with a week of staying alone at home while she and our father went on a road trip. My twin sister and I talked it out, cried it out, and soon we were closer than ever. It became my sister and me and Z. We were an unstoppable trio and even became roommates in college. I finally felt complete and happy. In college, my twin and I resumed being tricksters, attending classes in place of each other and dressing identical so that we could scare people into thinking we were just one person. It worked on a lot of people, as usual, until I decided that I wanted to dye my hair. My sister was against it, but when I suggested it, she also refused to dye her own hair to match mine. I tried to convince her, but she was adamant that we didn't need to dye our hair at all. I thought that if I dyed mine first, she would feel a little more comfortable and then dye hers. But her reaction was the very opposite of that. She completely freaked out and went berserk, calling me a traitor and stomping out of our dorm room. Something changed in my sister after that incident. 
I did not know what it was, but she became wilder and didn't care about school anymore. I had to get a wig that was similar to her hair so I could take some of her tests and exams for her when she was too hungover to even open her eyes. In our sophomore year of college, she started to date another guy that I could just tell was bad news. He was the stereotypical bad boy type, always wearing leather jackets, used too much gel in his hair and rode a bike, but he was also a terrible person. He drank, smoked, and partied a lot. He was also very promiscuous, got into a lot of fights, and made trouble everywhere he went. It wasn't like we didn't attend the occasional party, but for the most part, my sister and I were introverts. Or so I thought. Suddenly, my twin had invites to every party in town. We attended a college in Los Angeles, California, so there was always a party to attend. She dressed up nearly every weeknight and came back either drunk or high out of her mind. I tried to advise her against her new lifestyle, but she only threw it in my face that if I could dye my hair when she didn't want me to, then she could do whatever she wanted, whether I approved of it or not. Eventually, I figured out that my sister wouldn't listen to me, so I prepared myself to face her boyfriend. He was very cunning and good at lying, and I was so desperate to save my sister from him that I didn't realize that he was roping me in too. The only downside to having a twin with similar tastes in nearly everything was the fact that we liked the same kind of men, for the most part. I didn't want to fall for my sister's boyfriend, but I did, and I fell hard. I tried to stay away from him, but he brought himself to me all the time, dropping by our dorm room and pretending to look for my sister, or even coming into our lecture halls to wait for her when he knew that she wasn't present in the class. I confided in Z, and she advised me to talk to my sister about it, which I planned to, but my sister's boyfriend had other plans. He called me out one night to confess his feelings to me, telling me how much he wanted both my sister and me to be bus girlfriends. I thought he was delusional, so I cussed him out for it and tried to walk away, but he suddenly grabbed me and kissed me. He was much stronger than me, so even as I struggled to push him off of me, it didn't work. Unfortunately, this happened right in front of our dorm room, and my sister had just stepped out of the room, all dressed up for a date with the same jerk. I would later find out that all of it was a carefully planned scheme for him to get my sister even further away from me. When he spotted my twin sister, he pushed me away from himself and wiped a hand across his mouth, accusing me of kissing him. I was too stunned to speak because my sister was there, and when I tried to explain, She called me names and then grabbed his hand and walked away. After then, I didn't see my sister for nearly a week, and she refused to pick up my calls or answer my texts. The only time she came back to the dorm was to pick up some clothes and to tell Z that she would be staying temporarily with her boyfriend. I cried to Z, but I knew that the only thing I could do was to prove to my sister that her boyfriend was just like a jerk and he was using us as his own personal jesters. Towards the middle of junior year, the jerk began to message me again, asking to see me and continually flirting. I had the good mind to block him, but Z advised me not to. Instead, I stored all of his texts as evidence, so when my sister and I were able to see each other and speak again, I'd be able to show her that she was wrong to believe a man over her own twin sister. The jerk continued to text me and beg to meet up with me. And when I didn't indulge him, he started to talk crap about my sister. He would send me messages about how she was a terrible girlfriend, 
and that he would leave her for me in a heartbeat if I would agree to be his girlfriend again. I'll spare you the rest of the details, but believe me, it only got worse from there. With Z's help, I found other girls that he was also talking to at the same time, and I compiled all of the evidence into one big file. For the first time in almost a year, my sister and I went home for Thanksgiving. She avoided me for a couple of days, but I wasn't worried because I knew what I had to do. I sent the evidence to her email with a fake email address that I created, and I left her to read it. She was very moody and quiet all through dinner, so I knew that my plan had worked. Later that night, while I slept in the guest room, she came in to speak to me. She asked if I was the one who sent the email, and after I came clean to her, she broke down in tears. I couldn't help but cry too when my sister apologized for choosing a lying and cheating man over me, and we hugged it out. She also apologized to me for also being fussy about me dyeing my hair. She just didn't want us to drift apart the way we did in high school. My twin then confided in me that her ex had started to hit her at a point. He also tried to introduce other illegal substances to her since she already drank alcohol, and that was where she began to be suspicious but she didn't know how to leave him. We spent the rest of the night talking and catching up on almost a year's worth of things that we missed out on. My sister suggested revenge to me and I have to be honest that I was very scared. What if he found a way to get back at us for it? She assured me that he had so many enemies because of how much of a jerk he was, so I agreed to plan his downfall with her. As I mentioned earlier, my sister is a very strong-willed person and she fortunately was not scared of a lot of things. She suggested that we report her now ex-boyfriend to the authorities for possessing drugs and illegal substances. I thought she was going too far, so on a second thought, she decided to alert some loan sharks that he'd been running from for a while. Me, her, and Z showed up to the door of the loan shark, and she let him know that her ex-boyfriend was a jerk, so she would let him, the loan shark, in on his whereabouts if he promised that he would beat him up for her. The man gruffly agreed and slammed the door in our faces after we'd given him the details he needed. We were frightened out of our minds, but we were very proud of our accomplishments. About two weeks later, we heard that my sister's ex had landed in the hospital after being attacked mercilessly. As if that wasn't enough trouble, we also found out that he'd gotten two girls and a female professor pregnant. My sister and I graduated from college with really good grades, and two years ago, we got married on the same weekend to two amazing men that cherished familial relationships over all else. My sister's jerk ex is a single dad to three kids, and maybe he's a changed man now. Could you imagine sleeping around left and right like this guy did, and then finding out you got not one but two different girls pregnant, including one of them being a professor? That dude made some dumb decisions because his life was screwed at that point. I don't think they learned their lesson, at least not for a while, because they ended up with three kids apparently. Do you guys think it's possible for a guy like this at some point in their life to finally change and mature? Or if they're doing all this by the time they get in college and even afterwards, do you think they're almost guaranteed to be a lost hope? Let me know what you guys think down in the comments. And our final story of the day is best friend doesn't respect the don't date your ex's rule. This is how I got back at my best friend for sneaking around with my ex-girlfriend behind my back. 
Now, this happened just after my senior year in high school a few years ago. I had just finished my final exams and my aunt invited my cousin and I to go on a short trip to Paris with her when my ex-girlfriend sent a text breaking up with me. I had just had lunch in a great restaurant with my rich actress aunt and I was so bothered that I threw up when we got back to the hotel. My aunt and cousin tried to cheer me up, but I was really sad and lacked the motivation to go out and participate in any of the fun activities. That text ruined the trip for me. What was supposed to be a fun trip for us three turned out to be the two ladies consoling and trying to get me to even step out of my hotel room. I would say that I didn't see that coming, but I did. She acted strange the whole of our final semester, and I knew something was wrong, but when I did ask her, she said she was just really bummed about her parents finalizing their divorce. She had told me, my mom, and anyone who cared to listen that she was excited about her parents divorcing when they announced to her that they were getting a divorce because they fought too much and she thinks they're much better apart. So I knew the talk about her parents' divorce was an excuse. I, however, tried not to push further or bother her, and instead tried to be there for her and be a support for her as much as I could. Finally, this seemed to irritate her even more. My ex-girlfriend would yell at me and roll her eyes at me, but I ignored her attitude and refused to be mad about it. One day I decided I'd had enough. I put my foot down and insisted that I will not tolerate her disrespectful behavior. She cried and apologized. She told me she was stressed out thinking about college, the future, and having to shuffle between her mom's house and her dad's. The next day, she came over to say goodbye to me before my aunt, cousin, and I left for the airport, and we hugged. I whispered an apology about the argument we had the night before. She admitted that I was right to have refused to tolerate her excesses, apologized again, and kissed me. It was all so sweet to anyone who was watching, but I was unsettled. Something just was not right, and it felt like she was kissing me goodbye. Yes, she was doing that because I was going to be away for two weeks, but it felt final. I wasn't shocked that she broke up with me, but breaking up with me via text and doing it while I was away on a vacation in Paris was just mean. I was supposed to be in Paris having a great time and resting after working so hard to ace my final exams. I refused to accept that it was over and decided I would talk to her when I returned home and we would figure it out and maybe make up. I just figured something was wrong somewhere. There was something she wasn't telling me and she would probably just say it when I confronted her and we would kiss about it and move on. Well, she didn't even let me speak to her when I tried to. First, I texted her to let her know I was back, but she read and didn't reply to my text. So I went to her mom's house where they all used to live. I'm going off to college anyway. It's best to break up now since we may have to do it later, she said before I could even say anything. I was hurt all over. I knew then that she wasn't going to change her mind, so I just said okay and left for my best friend's home. I decided to visit my best friend so we'd play video games together and I can get my mind off things. That was not the first time my ex-girlfriend and I would break up, though it did seem like the last time. We've broken up in the past, and my best friends helped me get out of my sad spell when we played video games together with my little brother in his house. He didn't even know I was back from my trip yet. When I saw him at the door, he didn't appear to be happy to see me and he looked a bit nervous. I told him there that my ex-girlfriend had broken up with me. He didn't look surprised at all, just nodded and let me in. Did she tell you why? he asked nervously. 
I told him about everything that had happened between us, how she'd been acting up and I blamed it on her parents' divorce and the night I called her out on her constantly disrespectful attitude and how she kissed me before I left for the airport. In hindsight, I should have noticed that he cringed when I mentioned that she kissed me, but of course, I didn't pay much attention to his facial expression at the time, or the fact that he expressed no surprise about us breaking up. I was hurt, and all I cared about was expressing my pain to my best friend. We didn't end up playing video games because I was heartbroken. I kept wondering aloud about why she ended things with me. We've had our issues in the past, but we've always been able to move on from them, and it only strengthened our relationship. Even when we did break up before, we got back together after almost three weeks, but this time, the way she ended things was so cruel, and I didn't even know she was capable of being so mean and cold-hearted. I spent my time in my best friend's home reading a book I found on the kitchen counter, His beloved dog, a beautiful golden retriever, sat close to me as I read. My best friend's had his dog for two years, and he loved her to pieces. She was an answer to his longtime prayer. He always wanted a dog, but his mom said no, and his dad just went along with whatever his mom said. He kept pressuring his parents to let him adopt one, but his mom insisted. He had to prove that he would be responsible with his dog and do well academically before his mom finally said she would consider it. On the day he got lucky, his dad brought home his dog and presented it to him. It was some months after his 16th birthday. My best friend was over the moon with excitement, and he invited me over to look at her. She was a beautiful little pup, and I was excited for him. He spent most of his time with her, and she enjoys being in his company too. I visit my best friend often, and he visits me with his dog, so she was quite familiar with me too. She's generally a lovable and charming dog, even strangers love her, and would try to pet her and buy her treats when he walked her on the streets. Anyway, enough about the dog. My best friend suddenly stopped visiting me. Ever since I returned from Paris, he never came over, and I didn't understand why until I had a conversation with my little brother one evening. That evening, I was writing a song in my room when my brother came in to ask how I was holding up. To be honest, I was over it and was just looking forward to leaving for college and visiting my aunt in LA before that. I had my plate full and had lots of dreams for myself. I told him this and he sighed. Honestly, I would be devastated if my best friend did that to me, man. Best friend? What? I didn't understand what my brother was talking about, so I just assumed he meant girlfriend. Oh, it's fine. Who knows? We would have just broken up when we both leave for college anyway. He says, I understand, but to leave you for your best friend? That must really suck, and you're a much stronger man than I am. Now I was lost. Best friend? I asked my brother in shock. My brother then told me that my ex and my best friend started going out while I was away in Paris. I could not believe my ears. He thought I knew already. He'd almost gotten into a fistfight with my best friend when he found out and warned him to never show his face in our house until he confessed to me. He preferred that my best friend break the news to me himself. Now it became very clear why my best friend was avoiding coming over to my house. Even when I visited him, he hardly said anything to me about the end of my relationship. He only just asked if my ex-girlfriend told me why. My brother felt very bad for me and he apologized for my finding out in that manner. I was no longer hurt though, I was just really angry. To think I rushed to him when I returned to tell him about how hurt I was and he knew why she ended it, but said nothing. 
I decided to get my pound of flesh, but I was undecided as to how to go about it. The next day, I texted him and told him I know why he's been avoiding me and asked why he didn't tell me earlier that he and my ex-girlfriend were together. I'm sorry, he texted back. I didn't have the heart to tell you. I knew you'd be pissed. We didn't mean to hurt you and have been into each other for a while now. They'd have been sneaking around behind my back even when we were still together. I was pissed. I told him it was fine and he thanked me and expressed hope that things won't be awkward between us. That was funny. Things will certainly be awkward between us. I was to leave for LA soon so I carefully hatched my revenge plan. I decided I was going to take his dog from him. Yes, he deserves that. We've been best friends all through high school. I always had his back and he did that to me? He knew how much I loved my ex-girlfriend. She meant the world to me. And he knew how terrible I felt when we first broke up. Yet he had no problem becoming the reason we break up again. Not only did he sneak around with her while she was my girlfriend, they officially started dating and posting pictures on MySpace just after we spoke about it. It was like they were waiting for me to find out so they could finally show themselves to the world. I also could not help but wonder how many people knew. I mean, my brother found out before me. Other people in school and in our neighborhood probably knew too. My best friend made a fool out of me and I was desperate to get back at him. The first thing I did was convince my aunt to pay extra for my flight tickets. Since I was going to be traveling with a dog, I needed the money. I told her I'd adopted a dog and added that it was because I'd started to feel lonely after the breakup, so she wouldn't ask any more questions, and she agreed. The day before my flight's date, I texted my best friend about visiting him that evening, and he seemed elated about it. I need to beat you one last time, I wrote in my text, referring to the karate video game we play together. He asked if I was coming with my brother. I said I wasn't, but I had a plan with my brother to pick me up later. Things were indeed awkward between us, until we started to play and things eased up. I even started to feel bad about what I was going to do, but I was not going to back down. Never! His dog was being all cute and funny as usual, and I suddenly could not wait for her to be mine. My best friend was in the kitchen when my brother texted to inform me that he was around. I asked him to come over to the window and passed him the dog. Luckily, she did not resist. I went into the kitchen and told him I had to leave and that my brother was around. He was reluctant to come out with me because he and my brother were not on good terms. And I took good advantage of this and dashed out. While we drove away, I saw my ex-girlfriend driving to his house. I was glad because this meant my best friend would be distracted and may not notice his dog was gone for a while. She started to bark, but we were no longer close to his house. Really? His dog? That is petty, my brother exclaimed. I waved him off and said nothing. Nobody could decide for me how to react to what my best friend had done. Before we got into the house, I made my brother promise not to tell our mom what we had done. The next morning, I was to leave for my flight. I'd switched off my phone so my best friend would be unable to reach me should he suspect that I left with his dog. But when I turned it on, I saw I had no messages from him. He most likely hadn't even noticed that his dog wasn't in the house. Perhaps my ex-girlfriend slept over and he was too distracted. The thought pissed me off even more and my mind was made up. My best friend's dog was going with me to LA. My mom saw the dog and frowned. Isn't that your friend's dog? She quizzed. I say, well, he gave her to me. She says, 
He gave you his dog? Yes, my brother and I chorused. I do not understand boys, she said and started the car. I had just landed at the airport in LA when my brother called to say my best friend came over to our house to see me. He asked my brother if he had seen the dog, and of course, my brother curtly told him no. He texted me, but I never even bothered to read his texts before deleting them. The next day, he and my ex-girlfriend were sharing printed copies of the dog, asking everyone in the neighborhood if they had seen her. I knew he'd be hurt. He loved his dog and she loved him too, but that was exactly the reaction I wanted. To save him the trouble of searching, I sent a picture of the dog in my aunt's apartment to him. I had a hard time with her at first since she wasn't used to the environment, but she eventually warmed up to me and became my new best friend. He cursed at me, but I didn't care. I had gotten my revenge and it was a sweet feeling. On one hand, yay a new dog. On one hand, I am depressed that that guy lost his dog. And somehow on another third hand, I'm really wondering why there wasn't any kind of like law enforcement or legal thing going on here. Even though it's probably like cross country. I feel like if you can identify that it's your dog that was stolen and you can tell where they are, you should be able to do something about it, right? I'm just surprised that it seems like the best friend gave up on getting their dog back. Is my mother sent her cheating husband to prison? Before I dive in, I want to give you all some background. My mother died approximately 5 years ago, leaving a house along with all of its odds and ends. We had a tempestuous relationship, but nonetheless, I loved and respected her, so her loss knocked me for 6. It was about a year before I could bring myself to sort her things out. When I was sorting through her chest of drawers, I was surprised to find a collection of papers. It was her memoirs. Reading it was like reliving that first moment when you first realize that your parents are not just nurse and cook. I learned entirely new aspects of her life. I've come to regard her as quite the early feminist. It soon occurred to me that such an interesting life would potentially be of interest to the wider public. So I set about tidying it up and preparing it for inspection by a literary agent. I thought it might be a good idea to test the waters first though, so that's why I'm here. I'm going to post an excerpt here, spliced with other parts to give context and gauge public reaction. If the reaction's positive, I'll be able to approach an agent with evidence of its publishing viability. So without further ado, here are one of the powerful parts that she recorded in her memoir. Young girls in my day were supposed to be tender creatures, sweet and chaste. They were supposed to have innocent flirtations with upstanding young chaps living in upstanding little towns, stealing little kisses in private with their beau. That was, in their eyes, living wildly. They must have picked up their ideas of excitement from those sickly sweet films that were so popular at the time. Luckily it was the 50s, so we at least had rock and roll to shake things up. Meanwhile, I was doing my own shaking with the slim but vigorous farmer who lived down the lane. I used to creep around to the back of the farm and slip into the ramshackle barn on the weekends where we'd make love. It was terribly exciting but not in the least comfortable, especially during the colder months. Unfortunately things came to a rather abrupt finish when on one hot summer afternoon, just as my farmer chap was undoing my corset, my father came storming in. The sly bugger had cottoned onto my habits and followed me. He went ballistic and punched the man indignated that his daughter's innocence was being sullied. Oh, father, how late to the party you were. Needless to say, my parents sought to set me straight. But how? At 18, I'd left school three years prior, and in society's eye, was a young woman. 
Their solution was to arrange for me to be married. Oh, even in the 1950s, the art of arranging marriage was old hat and simply ghastly. So there was no way I was to be persuaded. At first, my parents threatened to send me off to live with Great Aunt Mary if I didn't acquiesce. Gosh, I thought, what a fearsome idea. Mary, you see, was a stern old spinster. She was dirt poor and survived on a small stipend granted by my parents. In return, she occupied the position of terrifying ghoul brought out only to terrify young children into good behavior. I decided to call my parents bluff and see what happened. They changed tactics by appealing to my indisputable sense of independence. If I agreed, they said, they would provide me with a modest monthly allowance continuing after marriage. So I may continue to be footloose, if not fancy free. I considered this offer in earnest and concluded it might not be a bad idea. The marriage would likely be a loveless one, purely practical, and so I may continue to have my dalliances. Having a stable income and no parental interference were bonuses, so I accepted. My parents were delighted and set about finding me a suitable partner. They chose a vicar, they told me. I recoiled. I had a vision of a withering elderly man with fewer teeth than your average pigeon. My parents evidently realized my initial fear and found it endlessly amusing before eventually setting the record straight. Yes, they had picked a man considerably older than me. They thought I needed a mature hand to guide me, but he was new to the game. A recently ordained vicar of 26 who was settling into a village parish not more than a stone's throw from our own village. Well, that's not so bad, I thought. I'll admit now that, which I would have been denied back then, I felt intimidated. I'd never been alone around a man as old as that until then, and the conditions were all new. Formalities in place of a simple romp, a measured pace over a frantic one. We first met in a local tea room. I sat nervously by the bay window when I saw him roll up in a red convertible MG. I couldn't believe what I saw thick black curly hair and a rather handsome face. Unlike the younger chaps I'd known, his face was maturer as you'd expect. Gone was the baby fat, replaced by well-defined bone structure. He reminded me of Rock Hudson, a rather uncanny observation in hindsight. When he said that he was interested in getting to know me and asked me to talk a bit about myself, I quickly realized there hadn't been much to tell. Well, not the kinds of things you can discuss with a man of the cloth anyway. When I managed to steer the conversation back to him, I breathed a sigh of relief. I found that he was originally from Middlesex and, to my young mind, that was some kind of sign because I had a grandfather who was born there. His name was Jack but his friends knew him as Rupert because for a brief stint he'd had a bash at being a rowdy teddy boy, velvet collar included. In keeping with that, like me, he was fond of rock and roll, a fan of Bill Harley and his Comets but an even bigger Elvis fan. He said he would go and see him in concert if he even toured in the UK. I impulsively said I'd go with him. I would have regretted that had he not smiled. He was an excellent conversationist. He made it feel as easy as breathing. I was becoming more and more taken with him until he mentioned that he had a dog, a Labrador called Sally. Oh dear, I thought. I never liked dogs and they didn't seem to think much of me. As a child, I got bulldozed by a Great Dane and was left crying for Mater. I thought if we were to end up living together, the dog would have to go. I wasn't going to run myself ragged chasing a dog around for any man. I asked him why he became a vicar and soon found myself enthralled by him once again. 
He told me that his life hadn't been easy, that it had presented him with unusual challenges, and that he was on a spiritual quest to find answers. His interest in Christianity had been triggered by an uncle of the Greek Orthodox tradition. He said there was something inspiring, almost mystical about the man's devotion to his faith. From there onward, Jack, or Rupert, decided to dig deep into Christianity and see if he could find a home in it. He eventually found that in the most dependable of Protestant traditions, the Church of England. With the first date being largely a success, we became a courting couple and in the end did end up living together. We were married almost a year after first meeting in a rather subdued affair and then it was just a matter of starting a new life in the next village over. The vicarage was quite a fine home, not grand but large enough for two and a few guests. We didn't have a honeymoon as we both agreed to save money, so our marriage was consummated at the marital home. It's clear he knew what he was doing, but the experience somehow didn't sit quite right. As it also happened, after a few weeks, I managed to persuade him to donate the dog to a local family. What a fuss he made over an animal. The dog whined as it was being taken, causing my dear husband to weep. I said, good God, man, get a grip. It'll have forgotten about you within the day. And they say men are the rational sex. I fancy that I made a rather good vicar's wife. I took messages, baked bread, made tea for visiting parishioners, and offered friendly chit-chat. I quite enjoyed the sense of role-playing that it brought. I felt I was acting the part, playing a character, one so completely at odds with my natural inclinations. Then I would sometimes just let loose and go off on a jaunt to the nearest town and head for the dance hall. It was like rediscovering myself every single time. One thing I didn't enjoy much was the routine. I put up with it just as I'd done in school, but I preferred to live life by the minute. I knew all our parishioners by name, and it never took long for me to learn a new one, as was the case with Mr. Glover, a young writer who had just moved into Pear Tree Cottage. He was quite an unappealing fellow, if truth be told, veering towards ugly with the strangest gait I've ever known. I always had to contain myself whenever I saw him walking. Every so often, we'd hop in the car and visit my parents for Sunday lunch. Oh, my parents adored him. My father saw a dependable husband for his daughter, and my mother saw a well-mannered, cultivated man who fit the family perfectly. Sometimes I wondered if I should just stay at home and leave them to it. The three of them seemed perfectly content in each other's company. One such afternoon, my parents brought up a topic that definitely brought me to the center of attention, children. It was bad enough that I was having doubts about our compatibility in the marital bed without unsubtle allusions to the act by my parents. I should have anticipated it though, my parents were always to the point about anything. So when they asked, rather imperiously, when we were going to start having children, I just wanted the ground to swallow me up. To make matters worse, Jack was not his usual extroverted, confident self. He recoiled at the question, shriveled like a prune. We both ended up skirting around the question, giving vague, formless answers. My parents couldn't hide their disappointment at our lack of rigorous baby planning. After that, I remember thinking that my dear Rupert would probably have much preferred a visit from Mr. Glover. As it happened, he visited the vicarage quite a lot. He and my husband were ardent detective fiction fans. The usual suspects, Christy, Holmes, Sayers, and so they were keen to discuss this or that book that they'd read. I had read and enjoyed a few such books, but never quite held the same insatiability for them, so I rarely chimed in on such conversations. 
It got to the point that I became bored silly with sitting around on Friday evenings, listening to them infuse without abatement, that I made that my dancing night. A few months later, I came home early one Friday evening because my heel had snapped. As I walked towards the house, I saw that the bedroom light was on and the curtains were closed. At first, I thought nothing of it. I assumed he was probably looking for some book stashed in his bedside cabinet, something to lend Mr. Glover. But then I saw two shadows scrambling around where the bed was. I was livid. My husband had invited some floozy into our home and was playing away with her. I had been entirely faithful to him throughout our courtship and marriage, and here he was behaving like a dog. I crept up to the front door and opened it as quietly as my shaking hands could manage before slipping into the hallway. I was dumbstruck by what I heard. Two groaning voices, and they were both male. I felt angry, betrayed, and confused. I had heard of homosexuals, but I'd never before encountered one, let alone had any idea that I'd been living with one for months. When that realization hit, I felt sick to my stomach. He'd betrayed me in the most immoral of all fashions, and I was no more than a blind lamb. I found some nugatory consolation, and knowing the infrequent odd hooking up was not as I'd feared, my fault. No, he was choosing to cavort with other men. Even now, writing that makes my skin crawl. At first, I didn't know what to do. I daren't tell my parents because, for one thing, it would be humiliating. And for another, I couldn't fathom how my father would react. He might have gone and done something rash and gotten himself into trouble. I couldn't yet leave either because I hadn't had the means to do so. After some thought, I decided there was only one course of action. I would bide my time. I'd have to live more frugally for a while in the name of saving my modest income for a very rainy day. It was like pulling teeth, a year and a half of pinching pennies, of pretending that I knew nothing and felt affection for this man. I made no attempts to be romantic with him, but remained outwardly civil, an arrangement which seemed to suit him. I wasn't a highly religious woman, but I did believe in the importance of law, so I knew what the just thing to do was. But first, I had to make sure my signal was transmitted at just the right time. For that to happen, I had to study the interactions between my husband and his ghastly enamorado. I thought it would be a simple matter in the beginning because there had been a regularity and consistency in them. But then I caught wind of Mr. Glover's new job. Writing wasn't sustaining him, he said, as a salesman. Well, that was all I needed. He had jammed a whopping spanner in the works. Now their get-togethers were much more sporadic, every other week, perhaps a Friday or a Wednesday. I felt like I was back at square one, stuck. My frustration got the better of me during that dark period. I was quite short with him at times, snapping at him for, in hindsight, relatively trivial matters. But then, as if by divine intervention, I had an idea whilst lazily skimming through one of his Poirot books. I could trap him, both of them. One morning over breakfast, I told Jack that I would be joining an evening class with a friend. His eyes lit up. He pretended to be interested, asking me what and when. I told him that it was an art class on Tuesday evenings and that it would be quite late. I thought the later, the better, because Mr. Glover was more likely to have finished work and be free to visit. Jack beamed at me and I could have slapped him. From my vantage point, he may as well have been waving a flag bearing the word fool in my face a truly depraved and remorseless man. To make sure that everything would go to plan, I waited three weeks, 
three Tuesdays, dragging myself to a concealed spot to watch the house. Every time, to my simultaneous repudiation and relief, I saw the bedroom light illuminated and two shadows interacting behind the curtain. Like clockwork, I turned the other way almost as soon as I saw them. There were two reasons I waited so long to move forward. Firstly, it was a matter of nerves. The severity of the situation, in all senses, was not lost on me. I was going to be a single woman in the wild after so long in a stable relationship. I felt that I could never face my parents for the embarrassment, and last and definitely least, was the matter of Jack and Mr. Glover. The other reason was a timing issue. I would have to get to the little police station in a larger village a few miles north, as there was no working telephone box in our village, and I wasn't about to air dirty laundry on a neighbor's phone. No, that would have never have done. I wanted to retain anonymity too, if possible, and I couldn't very well do that in front of a neighbor. So, before leaving, I called the aforementioned friend, who'd been made aware of the situation, to check. She would still drop by and pick me up for class. I stood outside, essentials packed into an overnight bag, and waited for her. When I saw her Morris Miner's headlights peer around the bend, I found my anxiety rocketing. The friend in question was a pal from my school days. Her name was Florence, and she had the most wonderful taste in soft furnishings. As a wedding gift, she had given us a splendid tablecloth that she had made herself. It was a simple rose design, but ever so elegant. By contrast, I lacked the island for that sort of thing. She always had been a good friend. Flory, an absolute rock. She drove me to the police station and then waited for me. I went in and found a stocky officer at the desk. Even there, I didn't want to say it in the open, so I asked if there was somewhere discreet we could talk. I told him the matter was highly sensitive. He was very obliging. He sat me down in an interview room with a cup of tea and invited me to take my time. I said I must tell him as soon as possible or it might be too late. He gave me the oddest look, but then I explained that my husband was a homosexual engaging in sodomy with a neighbor. It was quite surreal to say out loud. Officer Stevens' face became unreadable, told me to stay put, and that he would send someone to investigate as soon as they could. It looked like my hopes of anonymity were slipping away. The wait was torturous, but eventually after about three quarters of an hour, Stevens reappeared with the news. The discomfort on his face suggested bad news to me. He must have been too late. The dirty duo must have finished before they got there. Alas, I was wrong. The discomfort was the officer having to relay that, yes, my husband and his lover had been caught red-handed, naked, and their depraved version of copulation. The pair of them had been taken into custody. After an interview, I was allowed to go. When I got into the car, I apologized to Flory and asked her if I may make a further nuisance of myself. I told her that I'd like to drop by the vicarage and pack a proper case. Dear Flory, she obliged. Even after all that waiting, she showed no signs of annoyance at being asked to essentially go around in circles. I didn't stop long. I didn't even want to be in that bedroom at all, let alone so soon afterwards, but I knew I might not get another chance. I packed the case into the boot of her car, and off we went to town, where I stayed with her until I knew what was what. Both of them were charged for their buggery, and I was cautiously pleased. It became clear that I'd have to take part in a trial, which isn't at all what I wanted. For all the things that had gone wrong though, there was a silver lining in that my parents would not be attending. 
In fact, they likely wouldn't know anything of it until it was over because they were on a touring holiday on the continent. The trial was short and damning. His defense had tried to insinuate some twisted conspiracy from my recollection of waiting and watching, but mine and the attending officer's testimonies were really quite cementing. When it was time for the verdict, I felt confident that justice would be served, and it was. Jack and Mr. Glover were convicted and sentenced to two years in prison. Jack went down quietly, looking quite resigned, but Mr. Glover made a terrible fuss. He was practically dragged down. As soon as I'd packed up, I thanked Flory and her husband for letting me stay and departed for the train station. I was going to head for London. When I got there, I used much of my savings buying a cheap flat and set about looking for work. It was dull, but I eventually got a job as a librarian. Good grief, if you told my younger self that I would have ended up being a vicar's wife and then a librarian, I would have laughed myself silly. Preposterous, I would have exclaimed. Fortunately, life got a bit more interesting from the day I met Charlie, the man who would become my second husband. Still waters run deep was a phrase made for men like Charlie. On the outside, he seemed quite normal and placid. On the inside, though, I discovered there was a heart of great passion and adventure. I was more cautious second time around, so it was just over two years before we committed. Some years later, I received a letter from Jack. He wanted to meet me in a cafe in Fulham to discuss things that should have been cleared up back then. I vacillated over what to do, but in the end, I decided that I no longer bore any bad will against him. I had moved on, found the love of my life, so I no longer had any reason to be displeased. In fact, if anything, I should be ironically a little pleased with him. For if it had not been for Jack, I would never have met Charlie. So I decided to go. When I got there, I found it was quite a rustic, bare-bones sort of establishment. There was a radio playing a hit by a newly famous band called The Kinks. Sitting at the table nearest the counter, looking rather rugged and weathered, was Jack. He'd grown a beard. I went over to the table and sat opposite him. For a moment, neither of us said anything. In the end, I decided to cut the silence. I don't for a minute regret what I did. What you were doing was illegal but I should like to make it clear that I have no bad feelings towards you now. What's done is done. You've served your time, and I've moved on. He said, you what? You bear no bad feeling? You? I'm the one who got sent to prison for just having feelings. Feelings that aren't even bad. They don't hurt anyone. I say the law disagrees, and the Bible for that matter. They say to heck with the Bible, to heck with it all. The church turned its back on me after what you did. Apparently, lessons of redemption don't apply to so-called criminals like me. I said, I didn't do anything. I was starting to get quite riled. You betrayed me in the worst possible way, made me feel foolish, they say. And having me locked up in a tiny cell for two years, sharing a space with all manner of villains and permanently ruining my life, that's the appropriate response, is it? I say, you must be doing something for work. They say, I wasn't talking about that. I say, then what? He says, Eric. He hung himself a few weeks into his sentence. I'll admit now that I did feel somewhat put out by this revelation. However, it didn't change the fact that he wittingly partook in an affair with my husband. Well, that's it. I hope you found it as intriguing as I did when I first read it. You see, I did actually know that my mother had been married before she met my dad, Charlie, but no clue whatsoever that the marriage was so crazy. All she ever said was that he was a vicar and that they weren't compatible. 
I'd ask you not to judge my mother too harshly. Some of her attitudes may seem a touch dated now, but she was a product of her time. And in fairness, she had been cheated on by her husband. I can attest to the fact that she was a brill person and mother, very caring and involved. She was the kind of person who would go well out of her way for a stranger and loyal to a fault. Right until the end, she was a very passionate woman and held people to a high standard. I like to think that she made the world a better place. For anyone that's interested to know, I did do a bit of homework and discovered that Jack's life didn't turn out too badly in the end. He found a lifelong partner, entered a civil partnership as soon as the option became available, and then married him when gay marriage was legalized. They had a couple more years together before Jack passed. So, in the end, you could say everything worked out for all involved. There's a number of dramatic portions like this in her memoir. There's none who live so powerful as the passionate. So, in theory at least, would you be interested in reading an autobiography of this? I think it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on this portion of it. I've already shown a few close friends, and it's generally been well received. Though I do think one friend was overly critical of my mother's response. Anyway, I digress. I thank you all for your time and consideration in advance. It's much appreciated. So, considering everything that went down here, how very much a product of the times it seems this experience was, would you ever be interested in hearing more of this memoir? Or was it just a bit too much to stomach? Let me know what you guys think down in the comments below. Is the big audition. Two years ago, my roommate of two years told me he was moving out. It was expected since he had just gotten engaged to his high school sweetheart, and I knew they would want to move in together to a bigger place. I was excited for them, but super bummed about him leaving. He was the best roommate ever and was almost like my brother. We had so much fun living together. Before he moved out, I posted on a site that I was looking for a roommate. I wanted to carefully choose a roommate as I've read so many stories about bad roommates and I didn't want any drama. I wanted someone like my former roommate, very respectful of my privacy and caring at the same time. He took ensuring the apartment was safe very seriously and was clean to a fault. I especially like that he took security measures very seriously. You see, back in college, my roommates and I were robbed by a guy one of us had brought home from a party. The robber had a gun to my head and made me lie on the floor, my face to the ground. The three of us were traumatized by the incident and went home for a while. I've been extra anxious ever since. It's been getting better though, but I still get pretty anxious about having strangers in my home. When I told my former roommate about my experience, he was quite understanding about my plight and he promised to never bring in anyone who would compromise the safety of our home. I got many responses, interviewed four people, and was very satisfied with one. She had just graduated college and had parents who were going to pay her rent for a year until she found her feet, and had also just been offered a job in my city, so it all made sense. All was going according to plan until she called to say that she had gotten a better apartment and offer. I was very disappointed, tired, and uninterested in going through the tedious process of interviewing people all over again. At the time, my guy roommate had moved out. I spoke to the person who I preferred after her, and she had also gotten another offer. I was left with another person whom I'd interviewed too. She works as a waitress at a restaurant and was also an actress. She was working as a waitress while waiting for her big break in Hollywood. She excitedly decided she would be my roommate. We met later and talked. Afterward, she paid rent and moved in that same week. My roommate was very outgoing and partied a lot and she had a lot of fun. 
I work from home, so more often than not, I was in the house. I only leave the house whenever I want a different environment to work in, and usually I go to a local coffee shop in the area. My roommate was hardly ever home. She always had to go to work, had a date, a party, or an audition to go for. We barely had time to talk and get to know each other personally, but so far we were good roommates to each other. All was going well until she started to date a very weird looking dude with a strange intimidating character. Her boyfriend hardly ever said anything to me. My roommate was barely around, but he mostly was and would simply perch around wherever I was in the house without ever speaking to me. I tried several times to get all chummy with him and start a conversation, but he would just mumble an incoherent response and sometimes he would just ignore me when I speak to him. He barely even replied to my greeting. My roommate said he was an actor like her, but I'd never seen him go for an audition like my roommate. He was always in the house, watching TV, eating food from the fridge, and taking endless naps, most times on the living room couch. My roommate and her boyfriend started to organize parties every Friday in the living room. I was worried and asked her why her parties were so frequent. We're in the show business, my roommate said. We need to organize parties and find ways to socialize and expand our network. I was confused. She rolled her eyes. Well, I don't expect you to get it. I ignored her subtle jab at the quiet life I led and let it go. Every Saturday morning, the kitchen and living room would be very dirty, and I would clean with my roommate, never mind the fact that I was never really invited to the parties. Her boyfriend never cleaned with us too. One Friday night, I was out on a date, and I returned home quite late. As usual, my roommate and her boyfriend were hosting one of their parties, but this time there was a large table, some game going on and a large stack of cash. I knew immediately that they were gambling. Of course, it didn't go well with me that my roommate's boyfriend had turned my home into a gambling house. I decided to speak to her about it, but I couldn't find her, so I walked up to her boyfriend, tapped him on the shoulder, and asked to speak with him privately. He looked at where I touched them as though an irritating fly had perched on his arm and frowned. What is it? He yelled over the loud music. I need to talk to you, I yelled back. He walked out with me to the kitchen and it was noisy in there too. I signaled for him to come with me. We went out through the kitchen door and I tried to control my anger. What are you doing? I asked him. You got a problem? He looked very uninterested in what I was saying. What do you mean I got a problem? Of course I've got a problem. Is this even legal? He yawned. Listen, nerd, we're all just having a little bit of adult fun. Stop making a big deal out of all these. He left me standing outside. I was too upset to go back in, so I called my friend to ask if I could spend the night at hers, and she agreed. The next morning, I was back in my home, and it stank. It was too messy. My roommate wasn't home to clean up the party's mess, and her boyfriend was probably waiting for her to return home and clean. I was beyond disgusted. I packed a few things in my computer and went back to my friends. My friend thought it was unfair for me to have to leave my own house because of the mess he had created. They said next time, just call the police on them. I had to consider that, but I didn't want to be a party pooper. I went to parties in high school and my friends and I hated when someone tried to ruin our fun. I'm going to have to speak to her about this when she returns, I said. Girl, if you don't, I will. My friend was annoyed. I went back home two days later. My roommate was in the kitchen filling the fridge with groceries she had just bought. Hey, she smiled weakly at me. I told her we needed to talk and then went on to tell her about what happened on Friday. I told her I was not comfortable with having gamblers in my house and I guess that angered her. It's my house too, she exclaimed. 
I know, but this sort of activity attracts the wrong people. We can never be too careful. I also told her that I could no longer handle seeing my house filled with dirt every Saturday. I was tired of cleaning after grown-ups. She stopped replying and just kept opening cartons and filling up the fridge. I waited for her to say something, to promise to make her boyfriend stop, but she didn't. My roommate and her boyfriend stopped speaking to me altogether, and quite frankly, I didn't care. As long as they no longer used my house as a casino and turned it into an irritating mess the next day. That Friday, the annoying couple didn't have a party and I was glad. Imagine my joy not waking up to a disgusting kitchen. I was glad. They still weren't speaking to me and I still didn't care. I honestly thought it was all over until the next Friday. There was no loud music, just strange guys playing poker in the living room. I was enraged. I was more tolerant of the party because I thought it wasn't so harmful, but I could never tolerate weekly gambling in my house. Not after what happened in college. I walked in the living room and threatened to call the police. My roommate and her boyfriend were livid when their company left. She's just mad because she has a boring life, she said to her boyfriend, but loud enough for me to hear in the kitchen. I ignored her because there was no point arguing. I'd gotten what I wanted anyway. Boring, boring life, she yelled from the living room. I ignored her still. I knew if I engaged her, we would have a really big fight. I could be very mean too, but I try not to show the mean side of me till I've been pushed to the wall. I was starting to miss my parents, so I bought tickets to fly to Texas. I'd been planning a trip back home for a while, but work always got in the way. I was due to travel the next day, but I didn't want to leave things the way they were with my roommate. I knocked on her room's door to speak with her. I told her about what happened in college and how that made me very wary of having strangers in my home. Her demeanor softened, and she apologized and promised that they were never going to do what happened ever again. On my way out of the house, I saw her boyfriend smiling sheepishly. He looked happy to see me go. I sincerely hoped that she and her boyfriend would not do anything silly and trusted that she would keep her promise and stop the in-house gambling. I spent five days in my parents' home and we talked about everything and everyone, including my roommate and her boyfriend. My mom insisted on letting her go and getting a new roommate. I resisted though. My roommate and I are cool now. I told her what happened in college anyway and she now understood why I was super concerned about our safety. I was certain that she and I would have no problems ever again, but I was wrong. I returned to LA on Sunday and the kitchen and living room were a mess. It was all in an irritating state. I stared at the filth before me for so long before moving to my bedroom. I was horrified to see my bedroom door slightly open. I was certain that I didn't leave it open. I would lock my bedroom door when I'm out of the house. I always did that. I walked into my room and it was then I realized what had happened. I had been burgled. Someone had broken the lock and ransacked my room. My closet was wide open and all my stuff was on the floor. Clothes, hangers, makeup and all others. My designer bags and eyeglasses were gone. I had a small wad of cash and a tiny purse and it was gone too. I broke down in tears. The evil couple I lived with did not hear me because they were probably asleep after bringing Las Vegas to my apartment. My friend was out of town. I could have called her to come over because I needed someone to hold me down so I don't physically attack my roommate. I heard someone in the kitchen and went in to see my roommate cleaning the kitchen, collecting plastic bags and bottles from the floor. She smiled sheepishly when she saw me. Sorry, my boyfriend could not resist having a party while you were away. 
Her mouth flew open when I told her that my room was broken into. Please don't call the police was the first thing she said. She never apologized and she did not look sorry. My mom thought I was crazy because I decided not to call the police. I, however, told my roommate that her boyfriend had to leave my house if she wanted me to leave the police out of it. Why do you have to be such a witch, she yelled. I ignored her and left her my room to put things in order. Not once did my roommate apologize for my stolen stuff, offer to help clean my room, or even ask about what was missing. She only promised to send her boyfriend away. I was not satisfied with that at all. I knew I was going to get my revenge, and I patiently waited for the right time to carry out my revenge. Her boyfriend did leave, and our relationship improved. Three weeks later, I heard her screaming excitedly on the phone. From the conversation, she had been invited to the final stage of an audition for a lead role in a movie the next day. She was visibly over the moon with excitement, and even mentioned that she knew one of the judges and she could feel that this was going to be her big break. I knew then that it was my chance to get back at her. I was working in the kitchen when she came bearing fruits and smiling. I initiated a friendly chat about how I was considering getting a dog while she blended her fruits for a smoothie. When she was done with the blending, she kept the smoothie in the fridge. I went to my room and picked a laxative medicine I'd used for constipation a month ago and emptied it into her smoothie. She came to the kitchen a few times to pick some stuff up, but never drank her smoothie. I was worried that my plan would fall through. Well, luck smiled on me. I'd gone to bed later that night, but my roommate woke up at midnight and drank her smoothie. Of course, she got diarrhea and spent quality time in the toilet all through the day. I sat in the living room with a big smile on my face, feeling very compensated for my missing items. Oblivious of what I'd done, she came to the living room to talk to me about her condition. I smiled and said, please don't call the police. Yes, she missed her big audition. I'm just thinking about myself in OP shoes and I would be miserable living in that scenario. Even if these people were coming over and weren't gambling, I'm so comfortable being by myself that I would hate every single week having this group of people come around. Especially considering you have to rely that your roommate and their boyfriend watch all the items of the house so nobody steals or goes rifling through anything. When there's two roommates in a house, do you think it's unreasonable for one of the roommates to bring over groups of people that the other doesn't know at least once a week? Let me know what you guys think down in the comments. Our next story is my revenge against my horrible racist boss. A threat on horrible bosses? Count me in. I have the experience to share, and it hasn't even been that long since it happened. For context, I'm a 21-year-old African-American male, and I stand at 6 feet 3 inches. I've always been one of the tallest people in my class, and I also have very dark skin, so it's pretty normal for me to be the center of attention. Ever since I was a child, I've always been a pretty calm person. So it's quite common to meet people who think that it's an easy way to walk all over me. It's always fun to witness and even funnier when I prove them wrong. I started modeling three years ago when I just turned 18, and because I've got a very peculiar look, I hit it off almost right away. They weren't big jobs that paid a lot because, unlike a lot of models, I didn't start with an agency and I had to work freelance for a little over a year, taking on small gigs and a lot of free work to build my portfolio to a standard that I thought was good enough. At 19, I finally decided to work with my first agency. 
I won't say their name here, but they were a smaller agency in my hometown, and I'll admit that they were very helpful in building my modeling career. The only issue that I ever really had was the fact that I really wanted to do editorial modeling, but I was stuck with commercial and fitness modeling, which was ironic because I didn't even work out. I worked with the agency for another year and a half, and I made a ton of friendships and connections that I'll cherish for the rest of my life. One of them in particular was a gorgeous redhead, we'll call her R. Both of us were the youngest models in the agency, so naturally we gravitated toward each other. I enjoyed how quiet she was, much like me, but she could also transform into a whole new person when the both of us were alone. I also admired how she also knew when to speak up for herself and others. She was pretty brave, despite being really petite and standing at 5'5 as one of the smallest models in the agency. In modeling, sometimes there can be bullying and intimidation from older models or people who have generally been in the business for long, and I encountered these kinds of people all the time. I chose to ignore it, but R did quite the opposite. Soon, it made a lot of people respect us even more and stay out of our way. When they walked together, it looked like I, the much larger person, was being guided by a red-haired, walking ball of unbridled rage. Another thing I liked about R was the fact that she was very motivating. After graduating high school, I paused all of my intentions of going to college because of financial difficulties. Em and I worked another job as a virtual assistant to help with my bills. She worked at her parents' restaurant as a waitress and receptionist, and occasionally she cooked too. She also went to community college part-time, which motivated me a lot. Still, she was the one who knew about new opportunities the moment they came out. She always alerted me and dragged me along for as many as we could afford to go for. Casting calls, photography and modeling events, the whole shebang. It also proved to be very strengthening for our relationship because we seemed to get much closer. Eventually, the hard work paid off because we were both scouted by a huge modeling agency in New York. It worked with some of the most popular models in the fashion scene, and we were so excited. It was also a bonus that we were the first ever models from our small town agency to be accepted into one as big as the one in New York. R had a field day watching the expressions of people who didn't like us change when it was announced a day before we had to leave. Our trip to New York was sponsored by the new agency, as well as the hotel we would be staying at while looking for a more permanent residency. It was a no-brainer that we would end up as roommates, because she was now basically my best friend, and New York was a really expensive place. Too expensive for either of us to live alone. We got a place after three weeks of living in a hotel, and going to photo shoots and fittings every single day. And we finally moved into a nice place in Manhattan, although it does depend on what you consider nice. For us, nice meant that there was just one rat instead of an entire family of a million other rodents, like we usually heard about. We even named the rat Johnny, but I digress. We'd been in New York for about a month before we were finally able to meet the agents that were assigned specially to us. R got a lovely African-American woman with the loveliest smile, while I got a snooty blonde man that smoked like a train. We'll call him D because he was a massive D-bag. As I mentioned earlier, I'm pretty easygoing and can work with anyone, so unless there's a real problem that requires me to step back and assess the situation, I don't really care for it. 
I didn't have any issues with my agent in the beginning, mainly because the agency had already sent me a couple of guidelines and basic information that I needed to know, and I knew that agents usually had more than one model to attend to, so I read everything thoroughly to make sure that I didn't make my agent stress himself too hard on me. The red flag started to pop up when I went in for a fitting for a show that I was supposed to walk in two days, and I found out that I was getting paid less than the other models. Two of them were having a conversation about how they would spend their paychecks, and I overheard the amount. It was four times my own. I knew this because the agents usually let us know the payment for each job, in case we want to decline it. Usually I don't talk to other models first unless they initiate a conversation or approach me because I'm just really quiet and shy, but I had to speak to them so that I could confirm if their agency got paid more. It turned out that one of them actually belonged to the same agency as me, so I worked out that there had to be a mistake on my end. Right after the fitting, I spoke to my agent and let him know what I'd found out. He basically laughed at me over the phone and basically told me that I was being paid less because of how dark my skin was. I was very hurt by his words, but he acted like he was the nice guy, assuring me that we would figure out something else together. I was down for the rest of the day and R noticed, but I covered it up with exhaustion. Over the next couple of months, it felt like my growth was being stilted with my agent. I got lower paying jobs than R or any of the other new model friends I'd made, and they were usually very forgettable ones. Nothing as exciting as a runway or editorial or even catalog modeling. I sometimes did old boring company advertisements, and at a point, I even went back to fitness modeling, the worst kind of modeling for me. Being a model is stressful enough as it is, but doing a style that you're not comfortable with, nor enjoying, is even more draining. I started to feel less than my other friends and even started to decline to go out with them. I stayed cooped up in my room, researching what jobs I could apply for, with only a high school degree because modeling didn't seem to be working for me anymore. R noticed this and she tried to get me out of my slump for a bit. She was at the peak of her career and actually thriving, and I didn't want to bring her down, so I pretended to be down with the flu. Eventually she caught me in my own lie and demanded that we spend a night in. We did some skincare, her idea, ate loads of Chinese food, drank wine, and just talked. I let her know everything that had been going on, and she told me that she'd had suspicions about my agent D. I personally didn't think it was his fault. It just felt like I was unlucky and this wasn't the job field for me anymore. R assured me the best she could and gave me some motivational words. By the end of the night, I felt much better about myself and my situation. For the next month, there was no improvement work-wise, but at least I had enough work to pay my basic bills. That was until R got her own agent to pull some strings and get us in a shoot together. Since moving, we'd not worked together on any set, so it was nice to get to work with my best friend one more time. It was a great time and we got lunch afterward because it was for a pretty big fashion house and I wanted to celebrate. R just wanted bottomless mimosas. During lunch, I went to the bathroom and coincidentally ran into one of the models from the same set crying. There was some familiarity, so I inquired about the problem and he told me that his agent just told him that the company hated his work and that he wouldn't get paid. I felt bad for him, especially since I could personally relate to what he was feeling. 
I assured him that these things did happen sometimes and that they would only get better. Towards the end of our conversation, I asked him about his agency and wanted to know who his agent was, and he told me that it was the same one I had. His agent was D. Suddenly, nothing felt right about the situation. I parted with him and went back to the table, immediately asking R what she thought of the situation. She informed me that it was way too soon to know that kind of information, and if the company didn't like the shoot, they would just call for a reshoot. This was the moment when we both realized that there was something wrong. R was very good at snooping, and she also had a very nice agent who helped her find out most of the people that were under D. She sent out emails to each of them and somehow got them to rant about D. They all said the same things. He didn't pay them properly, was either racist, sexist, or just downright inappropriate around them. To some, he was all three. He overworked a few of them and sent them off without being paid at all, but they had no idea who to talk to because he was literally their boss. As we read through the emails, I had the idea to compile them into a single file and send them to the very heads of the company. But R had the idea to screw them up a little before we would go that far. We informed the five other agents, and they were very much on board with the plan. We did the basic high school things like egging his house and breaking his windows. We scratched his cars badly and lessened his tires. R even went as far as putting water in his engine and then a salt and sugar concoction. It made things funnier when we found out that he couldn't actually go and report to the police because he had a few assault cases on his tab, and he was basically hiding from the police. After two weeks of continuously tormenting him, we decided to give him a small break, as he would soon lose his job. R's birthday came up and we threw a dinner party at our apartment. She invited people from our agency to show up, and unfortunately, D showed up. Everyone was visibly uncomfortable when he came, but he didn't let it derail him from being weird. He drank a lot and tried numerous times to get into our rooms, nearly hitting R when she tried to stand up to him. We kicked him out of our apartment, and that night, we decided to send the email to the board in charge of the agency as a whole. It was so stressful waiting for a response from the team, which came about a month later. But when it did, there were a lot of apologies and promises to look into the case. They worked fast because within two days, D's name had been cleared from the entire agency's system. It was almost like he never even existed there. We, the victims, were reimbursed all of the money that we were owed and then some. We were also allocated to new agents who treated us much better than D ever did. The case was pretty serious and the entire agency had to update everyone on policies, urging us to speak out if we ever witnessed or were victims in similar cases. It felt empowering to know that R and I were mainly responsible for making the agency a safer place. If you're ever wondering how D ended up, I'll update you. He got charged with multiple cases of assault and sexual misconduct, as well as other smaller cases he racked up over the years. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison without the option of bail. Does anybody else think that, considering how awful and off D was from the start, that it's almost just flat out disappointing that it took all that action and all that build up before somebody tried to report them to somebody above D's head? I'm just wondering why it had to be this major bombshell before anybody ever reported it. And our final story of the day is gang revenge. I joined a gang in my teens. 
I didn't need to. I came from a middle class family. I had both my parents and they were really present in my life. I joined because I was stupid and rebellious. My parents didn't know what to do with me, even though they tried their best to reach me. I eventually ended up in prison and even that wasn't enough to wake me up. It took my mom getting sick while I was inside to finally let me see the light. I'd been in for a while and had to do some unpleasant things to stay alive, but eventually I was able to jump out and work in enough good behavior to get paroled, but it was too late. My mom died before I could show her that I'd changed. Before I could tell her how sorry I was for everything I put her through. The whole time I was inside, my neighbors took care of her. They were an elderly couple who used to babysit me when my parents worked late. I heard the old lady visited my mom every day. The old man would always tell my dad not to give up on me and that I would eventually come around. He even visited me a few times when I was inside. I moved back home with my dad after my release and went to thank the old couple for everything they had done for us. The old lady wasn't doing too well herself and it seemed like any day now it was going to be her turn. There weren't a lot of people at her funeral, just some of her friends, my dad, and me. The old man had had her entire casket covered with flowers from their garden. The two of them had the most beautiful flower garden on the street. As long as I knew them, they were working on that garden together. After she was gone, he went back to working in the garden on his own. I was struggling to find work because of my record, and my dad had to work away from home a lot for the travel pay. I didn't have any friends anymore, and I really didn't want to go outside, so I spent a lot of time just watching the street from the lounge window. I started to get to know the neighborhood pretty well. I started paying particular attention to one kid down the street. Not for any weird reason, I just saw a lot of my old self in him. He was a menace, especially to my neighbor. For some reason, this degenerate lowlife, I know it's rich coming from me, was tearing up the old man's garden at night. What's worse was the next day, the old man would quietly go about his day fixing the damage without saying anything to anyone. I wanted to tear this kid's legs off, but I knew that everyone knew about my record and it'll be bye-bye parole, so I waited. One week and a month, his parents would leave him alone at home to go to wine country, and that was when he would go and destroy the garden. I needed a weekend when both my dad and his parents were away so that I could teach him some manners. I had to make sure that I prepared myself well. I collected supplies, made recordings of what I needed to say, and watched the street. Then the weekend came. His parents left, and so did my dad. I went to my basement and got everything ready and waited for nightfall. Like clockwork, he came around 11 p.m. His rampage didn't take long, so I only had a few minutes. As soon as he was done and making his way back home, I jumped him in the dark shadows between the houses. I drugged him and carried him to my basement. When he woke up, he was properly blindfolded, gagged, and tied to a bed without his shirt on. I didn't have any soundproofing, so I made sure that his gag was not coming off. I had no intention of feeding him or giving him water. I wasn't going to keep him long, but I still wanted him to suffer. I pressed play on the recording that had a voice scrambler explaining everything that I was doing to him. I got out my tools and began using the skills I picked up inside. I wasn't concerned about being gentle. I made it hurt, but he was warned that the more he moved, the more I'd hurt him. The first few times he squirmed and even screamed, so I kept my word. He stopped moving after that. I was on a clock, so I couldn't take my time as I used to in prison, but I finished just in time to send him home before either of our parents got back. 
the old man's garden was never touched again. That kid spent a significant part of his life wearing long sleeves and not taking off his shirt in public. I had given him a prison resume on his skin, claiming that he belonged to gangs he was never a part of and had done things only the hardest of criminals do. If anyone in those gangs saw him with that ink, it was an instant death sentence. You know, as much as OP claims that they're reformed and they're so much better now, kidnapping somebody and putting almost permanent ink on their back that if exposed to the wrong person may try to kill him, who really is the bad person here? The one stomping some flowers or the one permanently marking a kid? Guys bully me for years? I get some slight revenge. This is the one time I felt proud of myself in my life. Let me set the stage. The revenge happened about five years ago. I came from a well-off family. We weren't rich, but we weren't poor. Well, when I was eight, my dad died in a car accident from a truck driver who ran a red light. My mom ended up having to work as a part-time escort just for a little extra cash to keep me and my sister alive. Me and my little sister ended up moving schools because she got expelled for attacking a kid. She had autism, and sometimes she gets mad to the point of violence. At the new school, I immediately started getting bullied. I was tormented by this one group of kids constantly for seven years. They mocked my sister for being autistic and said that I'm probably going to follow in my mom's footsteps of sucking for money. Every day it was non-stop torment. In my senior year of high school, I had had enough. I enacted my revenge during the last month of school. The months prior to this, I had been studying up on their schedules. Where they go after school, when they leave, when they arrive, where they live, etc. It was very stalkery, but I don't know fam. Then, after countless stalking and planning, I was ready. First off, some minuscule things. I poked simple holes all around their water bottles so when they opened them, it leaked everywhere. I unscrewed their desk legs to make their desks break even from slight pressure. I did everything I could to agitate them. Then I went on to bigger things. I'd spray coyote urine on their stuff and then fill them with animal poo. I wrecked their stuff beyond comprehension. They did worse to me throughout my life, and they deserved it. Now here's where it gets really, well, illegal. They all play baseball together, so I decided to hit them there. They went to baseball practice, and I followed behind them. They left the locker room, and I went in there and did some practice of my own. I brought a machete and went to town. Their bags were ripped to shreds. Three of the seven had wood baseball bats, so I destroyed those. I also set up a trap for them. When they opened their bags, an M80 would ignite. I put a metric ton of river clay in their car transmissions and set up beds of nails in front of their tires. I wanted them to suffer. Here's where it's really illegal. I went to the main bully's house. He's a jerk. He purposely dislocated my shoulder for no reason once. He's the one that said the thing about my following my mom's footsteps. He peed on me, he assaulted me, he broke me, and I was going to get my revenge. I waited for him to leave home and broke in. I crawled into his window and started having some fun. I disassembled his bed and computer. I moved a bunch of stuff in their house around. I turned on all the lights, all the burners, the showers, sinks, everything. I busted massive holes in their walls. I made a Craigslist ad advertising free rear entry for a petite gay guy and put his address and phone number. I opened a bunch of gay adult entertainment and viruses on his computer. I changed all their passwords, even their internet password. To top it all off, I followed a lesson from my idol, the PB. 
I went up to his room, took some laxatives, and coated his room in poo and pee. I wiped myself up, crawled back out, and left. I left no trace of it being me in there, but I'm guessing he knew. I overheard that the utility bill was extremely high and that he couldn't sleep in his room. He started failing at a high rate. Turns out he figured out it was me, attacked me, and got expelled. I don't know if I was in the right to do all of what I did, but I was proud and still am. If this story legitimately happened, I think it's safe to say OP, despite everything that they had happened to them, did not have the right to do nearly all of what they did. Would you guys agree with me that OP went way overboard here? Or considering all the harsh, harsh torment that they experienced, was it fair? Let me know what you guys think in the comments down below. By the way, if you're enjoying these stories, make sure to hit those like and subscribe buttons down below so you never miss any of my daily videos. Our next story is from Up Constantinople. Abused wife and mother watches husband die. This happened in the late 90s, so enough time has elapsed to safely disclose. I had a friend back then who had been widowed for four years. She told me her story of victimization at the hands of her abusive and violent husband. She was mid-twenties when her husband died. She was married to a man 20 years her senior. They married when she was still a teenager, and they had a five-year-old son when her husband died. Her husband was an abusive and violent man who kept tight control over her and the boy. Though he never physically abused the child, he was emotionally abusive and very threatening toward their son. He saved the physical violence for his wife alone. During their marriage, she'd been savagely hurt many times. She had permanent scars on her body and had been hospitalized several times with broken bones and other serious injuries. She was in fear of her life every day. She was so controlled, she was a slave in her own home, fearful of ever stepping out of line. One form of control was to always know where she was at any given moment, and if she ever had to leave the house to shop or run errands, she would be timed. She was given a time frame to be back in the house, and if she was even just one minute late, she would be severely hurt. Her husband was a licensed gun owner who owned a legal rifle and ammunition as he enjoyed hunting, and he would take that rifle hold it to her head, and tell her that if she ever attempted to leave him, he would hunt her down and end both her and their son. As well as hurting her, he would sometimes take the rifle, hold it to her head, and pull the trigger. It was unloaded, but that didn't diminish the terror she experienced each time, she told me. She said she was left in no doubt at all that if she ever ran, he would find them and end both. Another weapon he used against her was to threaten ending things himself if she ever left. Many people of that nature use the manipulation tool of threatening ending things or harming oneself to keep their victims tethered to them. When they threaten these things, they're causing the fear to rise within the victims so they don't leave. In this way, the threats are being used as a method of control. It's an incredibly common manipulation tactic used by people with borderline personality disorder, among other issues. Her husband did have dangerous medication in the house. I don't know what it was, and he would handle his bottle of pills whenever he issued a threat like that. One day she had to leave the house to shop for food. On the way back, she was caught in traffic that delayed her return to the house within the time frame she'd been given. She said the fear and panic was intense because she knew she would return to another serious hurting. She said it felt like her insides were being ripped out of her body as she pulled into the driveway 10 minutes late. She said she walked into the house in a state of blind panic. 
anticipating it when she saw him. He was motionless on the couch with the open bottle of pills on the floor beside him. She said she stood there and looked at him with a million thoughts of panic running through her head. Then she made her decision. She went to the other couch and sat down and looked at him. And she said that at that moment, her heart was pounding in her chest. She knew what he had done. He'd done it once before. She was supposed to walk in and find him breathing, but unconscious, and in a state of panic, call an ambulance for him, just like last time. But this time, she was 10 minutes late home. Last time she got help in time, but this time, she just looked at him. He wasn't breathing, no rise and fall of his chest. She said she looked at the clock on the wall and sat there looking at him, overcoming the panic and emotions, and stayed sitting there till 10 minutes had passed till she knew he could not be resuscitated and only then did she walk to the phone and make the call. She said the emergency services and police saw her obvious distress, the crying, the panic, the breakdown, and assumed it was the wife in distress at losing her husband. They didn't know they were watching someone who had just been rescued, someone who was at last free. The authorities did not doubt ending things as it was on record that he had tried it once before. That's the story of how one abused young wife and mother finally became free. P.S. She did rebuild her life, went back to school, earned her degree, and moved on to build a solid and safe life for herself and her son. I haven't seen her for years, but have no doubt she has never had any regrets over sitting on that couch that day and watching it happen. I think all you can really say about this is it's just an insane story from start to finish. If you ask me, I don't understand how the husband could even do such a thing to another person that they're supposedly caring about. I mean, not only laying your hands on people like that, but restricting them that way, putting time limits on them, treating them like property, basically. I just can't put myself in that kind of a mindset of how you'd have to think and feel to just do such things. And our final story of the day is by Fred Crissa. Life ruining revenge, six years in the making. I've had an on again, off again relationship with this girl since junior high. We've constantly been in each other's lives, even to this day we still talk. I thought I was in love with her, shocker I wasn't. But in high school, things got pretty serious between us, and the more serious we got, the worse we treated each other when we fought. It was the most toxic relationship I've ever been in, but we're actually great friends now. At the time, I was working stock crew at the mall toy store. Sometimes it was an early morning shift, sometimes it was overnight, so my sleep schedule was all messed up. We were dating and sleeping together pretty regularly my entire senior year. She had her circle of friends, I had mine, and they rarely intersected. Enter Jerkhead Kyle. Now Jerk Kyle gave a bad name to all other monster-chugging, drywall-assaulting Kyles. He was physically and mentally abusive to his girlfriend, later wife. He manipulated his friends into letting him walk all over them, got one girl hooked on pills after he got her pregnant so she would be forced to give the baby up. Just a next level scumbag. Kyle was part of both of our circles. He was friends with a few acquaintances I had, and the girl was pretty close to his girlfriend. The girl and I had just had a really bad fight a few days before and had made up in our usual way. As I was getting ready to go to bed for work for the next morning, my phone went off. It was a text from Kyle, followed by three pictures. One inappropriate photo of my girlfriend, one of my girlfriend and his, 
and the last one only half loaded but it was clearly a picture of my girlfriend giving him a present. I was furious, but as I was already graduated, I wouldn't run into him again to take my rage out the traditional way, so I just said forget it and moved on with my life. I was still mad at the girl for cheating on me again. This happened multiple times on both ends so it was forgiven pretty quickly. So we fought it out a few times and eventually made up when she told me the whole story. Kyle had told her that I was sleeping with his girlfriend's sister or something and that this was how she should get back at me. Now was it pretty dumb? Absolutely. But he wasn't so bright and the story wasn't so far-fetched that she didn't believe him. She told me that since it was BS on his end, she was done with both of them and we went on with our lives. The start of the long game, a few years go by. The girls move to another state, but we still keep in touch, and out of the blue, Kyle's wife hits me up on the book of faces. We talk about how life has been and whatnot, where we live and such. Turns out she's just down the street from me. We keep talking every so often, when she texts one day, asking for a favor. I'm not working that day and bored out of my mind, so I oblige and run a pack of smokes down to her, since she's out and can't get more because of her kid. I get to her apartment, and we hang out for a bit talking. We head out to the patio for a cigarette, and in the daylight her shirt is almost completely see-through. I make an offhand comment about it, and without a second thought she pulls it off. We go back inside and go to town on each other on her and Kyle's bed. We keep the affair going a few weeks, then just kinda stop. At this point, I felt my revenge was complete. I had this guy's wife on his bed, and he won't know till they get into another huge fight. I wipe my hands of the drama and go about my day. Fast forward another few years, my band had just finished a huge show before we went on tour, and as I'm doing the meet and greet thing at our merch booth, I get a Facebook message from Kyle, before the quarantine non-friend messages. Kyle was in the hospital. He said it was serious and had a question. Did you ever spend time with Hannah? I'm looking at this text, thinking of all the ways I could mess with his head, but decided to probe a little by saying, I think that's something you should ask her first. He replies, I did, and she told me something happened at our apartment. I need to know if it's true. So I think for a second and sent him two pictures we took, one of her giving me a present and one of the aftermath. He just replies, thanks, and blocked me. I think good, now the jerk knows what it feels like and go about my merry. But this story isn't done yet, friendos, not by a long shot. See, unbeknownst to me, Hannah and Kyle had another kid around 9 months after our affair. And it wasn't Kyle's. From the pictures, it was obvious that we didn't use protection, so he immediately suspected it was mine. Hannah knew better since she was already pregnant when we started, but just barely. Kyle viewed me as his enemy ever since high school because I stole all of his friends. So knowing that he was raising the child of someone he hated just burned him up inside. He turned to hard drugs and became a raging alcoholic, tried to get information on where I lived, and kept trying to get revenge on me for all of this, but failed miserably. Lost his job, his family, what few longtime friends he had. Basically his life just crashed around him. About two years ago I reconnected with another ex from high school, and she told me the aftermath. What Kyle tried to do, what ended up happening to his life. Hannah took him for everything in their divorce. Last I heard, he's locked up for robbing a liquor store while carrying methamphetamines. And a loaded pistol, which landed him in for about 12 years. 
I know the whole point is nuclear revenge, and I would agree that it is nuclear revenge, but is there actually any, like, right person in this story? You might be able to argue that one person's a little more right than the other in this situation, but I feel like the collective actions as a whole, probably just a bit of all around being a jerk, is getting my mayor investigated by the FBI. When I was young, I got a chemistry set and a football for my birthday. My mom got me the chemistry set and my dad gave me the football. I immediately fell in love with the chemistry set. I went through all the materials and experiments in a week. So my mom started buying me a new one every month. My dad wasn't happy about this because he wanted me to play football and insisted that I spend more time outside. But whenever we went outside to play, I'd just stand around not throwing or catching the ball. I'd be thinking of new experiments I want to try because the ones that came in the box were boring. I kept getting the sets because the chemicals were useful and I was running my own experiments with them. I eventually started doing my own research online and incorporating household chemicals into my tests. Obviously, as life for my kind goes, I entered science fairs and I did pretty well. Sometimes I won, other times I just placed. This was never good enough for my dad. He used to be some kind of football star in his hometown and also played in college, but he never went pro. So he wanted me to do that as well and go all the way, but that was never going to happen. Eventually, my dad got tired of trying to convince me to play, so we moved from the city and went to live in his hometown. We moved in the middle of my junior year, so football season was over and I had a prep for college and a new high school. Like most small mining towns, football was a religion and everybody was a part of it. As it turned out, the town was having its first science fair that summer, and for me it was like a sign from above, so I entered. My dad wasn't too pleased. I spent the next five months working out of my grandparents' garage because the place we moved into wasn't big enough for all of my stuff. I'd been collecting equipment and materials since I was six, and my mom's dad was more than happy to park his car outside for me to set up my lab in his garage. I was working on a clean energy machine which could run on water and other renewable chemicals for the science fair. I'd also picked up a bit of robotics and engineering, so I was building everything myself. By the time the school year ended, I was pretty much done with my model car and water engine. I was doing a couple of test runs for my family the week before the fair, just to make sure that everything was running smoothly. A few days later, my grandparents' garage was broken into and all my things were stolen. The car, my notes, my equipment, everything was gone. I was devastated. I didn't leave my room until the day of the fair. I wasn't going to go. But my mom convinced me, saying that if I checked out the competition this year, maybe that'll inspire me to start planning for next year. She knew which buttons to push because I'm incredibly competitive. Someone had stolen my project, and maybe they were brazen enough to show up to the competition with my car. I decided to go just so I could see who it was and confront them openly. My granddad took me and my mom to the fair, which was held in the center of town. Apparently, football wasn't bringing in the money to the town as it used to, so the mayor wanted to diversify to attract more attention, which is why he was hosting the science fair. For fairs like this, to get attention, the participants must be able to move up to region, state, or national level using the local fair as a qualifier. This meant there had to be external judges at the fair. Most of the exhibits were average. Nobody really brought anything that could compete on the higher levels, except for one girl. She had the most outstanding project by far. It was a self-built model car that runs on clean energy, water and other renewable chemicals. 
I was about to rage when my granddad quietly whispered, it's the mayor's daughter. I wasn't stupid. I knew exactly what that meant. If I, the newcomer to town, walked up to the mayor's daughter and accused her of stealing from me, it would not end well for me or my family. I was seething when I saw that blue ribbon handed to her. My mom just put her hand on my shoulder and said, I'm proud of you. That was enough for me to know that whatever I did, I couldn't drag my mom into it. But I was going to get even. About a month later, I still had no idea what to do when my dad called me downstairs. He straight up told me that I was going to try out for the football team and that I had no choice. Just as I was about to protest, he made it clear that if I even hoped to start replacing all the stuff that had been stolen, I had to try out and give a genuine effort. I hadn't run an experiment or built anything since my things were stolen, and I was planning on getting a job to help pay to replace my equipment. But if my parents weren't going to give any money to help me, there was no way I would afford to replace my stuff. I had no choice if I wanted to enter next year's competition, so I said yes. My dad told me to pack a bag because the bus to camp was leaving that afternoon. I was out of my element on that bus. I wasn't some sort of geeky loner who lived in his garage all day. I had friends in my old high school. We even started a chemistry club, but this was different. I had no way to relate to these guys and we all knew that I didn't belong there. It was going to be two weeks of heck and I knew that I had to try. I'm not a klutz, you can't be when you're working with sensitive materials, but I was also not athletic. I had no strength, speed, stamina, or toughness. If I were an RPG character, I'd be a cleric. Everything was put into intelligence and some dexterity. I was last in everything. Running, benching, throwing, tackling, taking hits. I could catch, sometimes, but I was slow. So there was no prospect of me getting onto the team. It just wasn't going to happen. It happened. We were told at the end of camp that we'll get a call if we made the team, and what time morning practice will start. I wasn't expecting a call, so I didn't go through the anxiety the others were going through waiting for that call. My anxiety started when the call came. The coach told me to come in the day before practice starts because he wanted to talk to me personally. It wasn't a very long conversation, but the gist of it was that even though I had no talent or skill, I showed heart, and that mattered in a football team. The chances of me actually playing were slim, but I could still improve as the season went on. He then gave me a stack of DVDs to watch so I could learn the rules and positions on the team. As I was leaving, I noticed a picture on his desk and recognized it as the same one my dad had on the wall with his trophies. My dad and the coach played together in high school. I then knew how I got onto the team. It just made no sense. My dad was so happy with the news that he pulled out his credit card and sat down next to me while I ordered some new equipment for my lab. I knew the whole thing was rigged, but I didn't care. I was getting my stuff and I didn't have to get a part-time job to pay for it. I did, however, have to get up at 4am for football practice. I'm not going to lie, I was a night owl and getting up early was not my thing. But after about a month of early mornings, the running, the training, and actually eating proper meals, I was starting to feel good about myself. I had more energy and I could think more clearly than I ever had before. No wonder jocks feel so good about themselves all the time. All the testosterone and endorphins, it was like being high all the time. That high was brought down by the fact that I was now in the same chemistry class as the mayor's daughter. She wasn't stupid, but she wasn't science fair material. 
She or her dad were smart enough not to try and go to the higher level competitions because she would have been exposed in a heartbeat. She was a really good actress because she acted like she didn't know who I was at all. Like she didn't know that that blue ribbon she got was because of my hard work. My dad started showing interest in my experiments and asking questions about what I was doing. He even drove me to the first game, which was about a month after camp ended. I rode the bench the entire game. We were pretty good and by that I mean we won. After the game, I saw my dad talking to the coach and a man who looked like a slightly older version of the coach. I asked one of my teammates and he said that the older guy was the coach's brother, the mayor. Everything immediately made sense. I suspected that my dad stole my stuff and gave it to the mayor for his daughter to win the science fair. In exchange, the mayor convinced his brother, the coach, to give me a spot on the team. So probably his daughter didn't know where the car came from, but still, she still took credit for someone else's work. So she was going to pay along with the rest of them, except maybe the coach. I don't know how much he was a part of this or not, and he was actually nice to me. The next four months were filled with 4am training, riding the bench, and planning my revenge. I never stepped on the field during a game, but I was in the best shape of my life when the season ended. I also had something sporty to add to my college application, so in some way I owed my dad, but it wasn't enough to forgive him. He got to brag around town that his son was on the varsity team and that I was even going to play at Harvard because I had the grades to get in. By then, I'd also determined that the coach was simply doing a favor for his brother and a former teammate, and that he knew nothing about what my dad and the mayor had done. When the new calendar year rolled over, the mayor once again announced the second annual science fair, and I was ready to punish those who stole from me. This time, my granddad put extra security on the garage, so I was the only one with access. My dad at every now and then asked me what I was planning for the new fair, and all I kept telling him was that it was a secret. After the fair was announced, he was asking me more often, and I knew then what he had in mind. At the same time, some of the other students had been asking the mayor's daughter if she was entering again this year, and what her project was going to be. All she kept saying was that it was a secret. The way I figured it was that she either asked her dad if he was helping her out again this year, or he told her that she'd have something again for this year's fair. Either way, my dad was definitely involved. For my plan to work, I need to get the mayor's daughter to up her chemistry level. I offered to be her lab partner and even tutor her for free. This is how I knew she didn't know who I was. So once a week, I was raising her skill and knowledge level to the point where she would be her own worst enemy. I told her that I was also entering the science fair with a secret project and that if I managed to get it right, one day, I was going to make millions of dollars from it. I started carrying a notebook that I wrote all my plans for the project in. I made sure my dad saw me writing in it, but never what I was writing in it. I made sure that no one else saw me writing in it. To be clear, I'm 100% digital. Everything I research and experiment with is saved on an air-gapped encrypted drive. I learned after the first time. Every once in a while, I'd forget it somewhere near my dad to see if he'd take a peek. He didn't. Not until it was sure I was going to be away for a while, like doing a number two. And so one day he took a look, and on the first page he saw my thesis. It read, The creation of an environmentally safe industrial solvent that can be stored dry and activated with water. I wrote a little bit extra about the effects such a solvent would have on a mine, but I didn't go into details about the project yet. 
Over the next few days, he kept asking me what I was working on and if it would make a lot of money. I tried to pretend that I was hiding something so it would confirm his suspicions. The truth was that an environmentally safe industrial solvent would have a major boost for a mining operation. It would reduce the costs of safety measures, EPA requirements, the need to crush or blast rock to separate whatever you are mining from the surrounding material. Something like this would make a town rich, and the patent holder even richer. The trick now was to feed them information in drips so that they could slowly dig themselves into a hole without realizing. I started with some equipment first. I made a list of things I would need to synthesize the best version of the compound. I made sure of two things. First, that I didn't have that kind of equipment, and second, that it was available at the school. I even made some notes about how not having the equipment was fine because I could make the solvent with what I have, but it will be of a lower standard, and since no one will have anything close to it, it wouldn't matter. Once I was sure that my dad had peeked at my notebook to get the list of equipment, I then started making notes on my process. The first step I had was the distillation of certain chemicals and compounds. I made reminders of how dangerous these compounds were to reduce and that I should practice with safer substitutes that had similar viscosities and textures until I got my personal protective equipment. This was all BS. You can't practice mixing chemicals with substitutes, but I knew that they didn't know any better. Wouldn't you believe it, a couple of days later, the mayor's daughter asks me how to mix these substitutes. And now, I knew I had them all. She was an active participant in the scheme. Most likely, she didn't know it was my project she was stealing, but her dad probably told her to ask me to help her. So I trained her how to operate the equipment at school that matched what they had at home, which they got from my wish list. Whenever she had made good progress on a machine or equipment, I would add more steps to my notebook for my dad to spy on. This would then bring her back to me for more tutoring. Her chemistry marks were going up and she was starting to take some initiative in her studying. Now, I need to be honest, I was still a teenage boy. Yeah, I was on the football team for half a second, but I spent most of my life in labs and clubs. I had never spent so much time with a girl before. Forget about being alone with one. As I got to know her, she didn't seem like such a bad person. I didn't realize that I was catching feelings for her until my mom pointed it out. I was sitting at dinner picking up my food when my mom asked me, what's her name? Yeah, I was super confused and defensive. She said I was smiling at my food and not eating it. Even before I started exercising, I was a fast eater because I wanted to get back to work. And even though football season was over, I still kept up my training because I enjoyed being in shape. So I always ate my food, except that night it seems that I wasn't. Apparently I was smiling at my food like an idiot. I knew I was in some kind of trouble. I had to take stock and figure out what went wrong. When I took a step back and evaluated the situation rationally, I realized that I was being stupid. This girl was my enemy, and I had to remember that. I psyched myself up and ran through all the things I would do to remain objective when we met for our tutoring session the next day. The moment she stepped into the room the next day, I was lightheaded. I never noticed that before. My ears were burning and it felt like my eyes were trying to climb out of my skull. I'm a man of science, but this felt like witchcraft. I started going through the list of reasons why I hated this girl and I ended with thinking, God help me. There wasn't much left to teach her. She knew everything that was necessary to create the compound except the materials. I knew that if I stopped here, everything was still okay. 
because once they got that list of ingredients, there was no going back. I was unsure of what to do. I walked her out to the parking lot after we were done because I'm still a gentleman. And that day, for the first time, her dad picked her up from school. He got out of the car and she introduced me to him. He shook my hand and said, I know your dad. He's a good man. He's doing what's best for you. I'm not making any excuses. Everything I did was my own choice. I made my own decisions throughout the entire scheme. But at that moment, I told myself that he made the choice for me. When I got home that night, I made sure that my dad saw me writing in my journal. I wrote down that I'd completed my final tests, that the compound works. It was not as pure as I would have liked it, but when I get better equipment after winning the fair, I'll make a better version for nationals. I also added the final list of ingredients for the solvent. I got up to go to the bathroom and forgot my notebook on the table. I walked around the corner, opened the bathroom door and closed it without going in. I then peeked around the corner and saw him taking photos with his phone of what I'd just written. I then quietly opened the bathroom door, flushed and went back to get my notebook. I burned it the next day. Before we go further, I need to tell you a little bit about ricin. Ricin kills. Doesn't matter if you inhale it, touch it, or ingest it. If a high quality sample gets into your body, you will die a painful death if you aren't treated immediately. You can make it at home with whatever you find under the kitchen sink, but it's not all that deadly if you're not using the right equipment. Homemade ricin will probably put someone in a coma and have them wake up with a bad stomach ache. The serious version can be airborne, water soluble, injected, and it's mass casualties. So you can imagine the authorities not having a kind view on ricin. I sent an anonymous tip to the state police that I suspected the mayor of making meth. Let me say this out the gate. It takes time to make ricin, but it's deadly. Which is why I made sure they had the personal protective equipment. I never intended for them to make any of it. I was hoping the stateies would show up in time to raid the mayor's house and find the lab with the equipment, materials and recipe, and the ricin still being cooked up. I figured a day for them to deal with the bureaucracy, maybe do a stakeout, and then they do the raid. After a week with no arrest, I was getting worried. I'd seen the mayor's daughter at school, so I knew they hadn't ended themselves yet. But if they'd followed the steps correctly, it'll be soon when they have a workable compound and they'll no doubt want to test it. If they did that thinking it was an environmentally safe compound or even spilled some in the lab, they were dead. That was not what I'd planned. I kept looking over at the mayor's daughter in class, wondering what I should do when the vice principal came in and told her she was going home early. I never saw her again after that. It turns out that the moment the mayor's name went into the state's police system, all kinds of flags went off. They were immediately told to back off by the FBI. The mayor's purchases of the equipment off of the list my dad snooped put him on a watch list. The moment he went and bought 10 times the amount of ingredients I suggested, they started full surveillance on him. They watched him and his daughter cook up the ricin and arrested them when they were out of the lab and before they could finish it. The mayor obviously accused my dad of giving him the recipe, saying it came from me. They were copying my science fair project. My dad sold me out immediately, saying that he was taking photos of my notebook. Of course, there was no notebook. And as everyone knows, I'm completely digital. When the feds went to look at my grandparents' garage, they found equipment and parts for a model car that runs on clean energy. 
I had restarted my project from scratch, making it even better than the last time. There was zero evidence pointing to me, and those other three went to the kind of prison that doesn't allow visitors. While it might be understandable why OP did what they did, do you guys agree with me that OP risked way too much here? Or was OP with covering their tracks and what they did justifiable? Let me know what you guys think in the comments down below. And our final story of the day is shutting down a cheating ex. When I graduated from university, I went to work for the city as an engineer. My parents couldn't afford to send me, so the state paid for my tuition. In exchange, I had to work an equal number of years for the city as I had studied. I was given a small salary, which I used to pay for rent and food. I couldn't afford anything else. I was really into music, one band in particular, and I listened to everything they put out there. I ran into a girl one day who was wearing one of their concert tour t-shirts. She was model quality attractive, and I could tell immediately that she wasn't a poser. There was just something about that that made me think she was the real deal. So I went up to her and said some of the lyrics from one of my favorite songs to see what she would do. She sang the rest of the song perfectly. I was pretty much in love at that point. She moved in with me soon after. She didn't really have a job because she was an actress or trying to be one. So she was picking up small parts here and there and the rest of the time trying to make some money bussing. It was tight but we made it work. We even talked about marriage one day when her things started picking up. One day, I went to have lunch with a friend of mine from university who also studied engineering. He came from money, like real money. So he went straight into one of the biggest engineering companies in the country. So on top of his family money, he was getting corporate money. Anyway, we were just catching up and my girlfriend was in the area and wanted to say hi to me. I introduced her to my friend and we talked a little bit about her acting and singing and he offered to introduce her to some people he knew. I thought he was just being nice, like something people with money say to everyone else because they can. A few weeks later, he gave me a call and said that he mentioned my girlfriend to someone he knows, and if she was available to come and try out for a part. I was happy for her and told her about it, and she went. She got the part, and it started moving her career in the direction we'd been hoping for. I still had one more year with the city and I had some job prospects lined up for when I was done. So, we had the marriage conversation again and we started planning a date for our engagement. Because her work was starting to pick up, she was out a lot more, having to network and audition as well as be on set a lot. So, I didn't see as much of her as I used to but we'd settled on a date for when we were going to have our engagement party. And it just so happened to be around the time when our favorite band was on tour in our area. So we figured we'll do the party in the afternoon and then go to the concert that night. I really didn't have a lot of money, but I had a little bit of savings and I wanted it to be a special night. So I used my savings to buy a ring and the concert tickets. In the weeks leading up to the concert and the engagement, she started seeming less and less enthusiastic about the whole thing. I'd already told my family and they were coming from quite far away for the party. I hadn't met her family yet and when I asked her about it, she said she hadn't told them yet. The day before the engagement, my parents arrived and had booked into a hotel nearby. I went to have breakfast with them at the hotel because I hadn't seen them in a while and I didn't want the first time to be at the engagement. When I got back to my apartment, my girlfriend's things were gone. I called her to find out what's going on and my friend picked up. He told me that he and my girlfriend had been seeing each other for a while and that she didn't want to get engaged to me anymore. 
He said that I should be a gentleman and respect her wishes and not try to contact her. Obviously, I spent the rest of the day texting and calling her, but she responded to none of my messages and didn't pick up my calls. I wanted answers. I wanted to know why, if she didn't want to be with me, would she string me along? I eventually got onto her social media, so I tried to contact her there when I saw that she posted that morning that she can't wait for the concert that night and she was holding two backstage passes in her hand. I was simultaneously raging and calm at the same time. I went to the hotel and told my parents what had happened and apologized to them for having wasted their time and money coming to see their idiot son. Like good parents, they tried to console me, but I just told them that I'd be fine and that they should just go home. I then went to the office and got a layout of the city grid. I wrote down the address of what I was looking for and got in my car and drove to the site. Once I got there, it was dark and the concert was jumping. I could hear it from where I was, even the crowd. I walked up to the junction box for the entire area, opened it, and shut down down the power i could swear i feel like i saw a video like kind of similar to this where somebody like was upset they couldn't get into a party or a concert and shut the power off from far away i'm sure this is the kind of thing that felt great for op but let's be real op's kind of a jerk because everybody else that paid for those concert tickets are getting totally screwed I get it, but it kind of sucks, but I get it, you know? I took the kids and got away from my wife. Nobody enjoys high finance, the pressure is astronomical, the hours are long, and quite frankly, it's dull. That's why when my wife fell pregnant with our son, I decided to look for a new career. I wanted to be a part of my son's life and do a fair share as a parent, but that was never going to happen as things stood. Time wasn't too much of an issue, we had enough savings to tie us over whilst I retrained for a new career. So long as we scaled back on the organic chicken and foreign holidays, we'd be fine. What I really wanted to do was work in the police force. The training at Hendon would only take a few months and I'd be fulfilling a dream. However, I was put off by the pay and the unsocial hours, so I had to strike that idea and move on. In the end, I decided that I should put my mathematical talents to use and retrained as a data analyst. I discussed it with my wife Sarah and asked her if she would be okay with the somewhat tighter purse strings. She said she more than understood. The financial sacrifices were more than offset by the ability to be a proper family. I was heartened by her response, though not much surprised. She lived for the chance to have what she'd missed in her early years. You see, my wife had been a care home kid. Her mother had been a teenager squatting in a council flat when she fell pregnant with Sarah and, what's more, an addict. When she was born, Sarah suffered from what's called neonatal abstinence, which is when the baby is exposed to drugs in the womb and subsequently suffers withdrawal. Her mother abandoned her and left her in the state's care, which led to a tumultuous childhood. She drifted to and fro from care home to foster family, never enjoying a sense of stability. It was the common story. She became a dysfunctional teenager whose life started to spin out of control. She got into fights, dabbled in drugs, committed petty crimes. At the 11th hour when she was 16, she found a foster couple who were experienced in dealing with problematic kids. They treated her with a great deal of kindness, patience, and understanding. That couple were my biological parents. I was able to watch as, little by little, Sarah's life started to turn around. Her character changed too. When she first arrived on our doorstep, 
Greasy-haired and sullen, she quickly established herself as the resident hardbutt. You couldn't talk to her, let alone do anything for her. As she settled in and began trusting us though, she opened up and revealed a beautiful personality. She never lost a certain edge, but it ceased to feel standoffish, if you know what I mean. It was when I'd come home from Christmas during my first year of university that something sparked between me and her. We were a little apprehensive about telling my parents, but we needn't have been. They were as understanding as ever. Well, I suppose even though it was a bit more complicated, it wasn't really sibling stuff, was it? We had some great times in those first few years. One evening, we had a date night at an Italian restaurant when a large, noisy rabble came bustling through and took up a large table not far from our own. At first, we exchanged looks of trepidation, but in time, found it wasn't nearly so bad. In fact, from our point of view, it was a pretty funny night. A little while after they'd got sat down, a nervous young woman arrived and joined them. As it turns out, it was a first date. The fella had brought along his whole family. Talk about outnumbered. They were an outspoken lot and didn't seem to have any kind of self-awareness. The father of the group started lecturing her about the dangers of the government and warned that the British one would follow America's suit and start killing off people. Then he asked his wife to pull out her iPad and lend it to him. She obliged and, before we all knew it, we were treated to Alex Jones on full volume, saying that the American Air Force had flooded Texas and killed dozens of people. I've met a few people like them before, and I don't think they mean any real harm. They're just a bit thick. The first couple of married years leading up to my career change were great too. We were upwardly mobile, had settled into a nice home, and were very fortunate. It was so idyllic that it seemed too good to be true. Our son Tommy was born, and by that point I'd settled into my new career as a data analyst for a recruitment agency. Then, my wife fell pregnant again. That complicated matters more than we realized, as the second child was born with moderately severe autism. Between the mortgage, the cost of two kids, and the extra cost of supporting a disabled child, our finances became a whole lot tighter. Amidst the resulting pressure, the hidden secret in our relationship popped out of the darkness. Sarah was an alcoholic. I found a bottle of wine hidden at the bottom of our wardrobe. At the time, I thought it was odd, but didn't think much of it. It was only when I later found two more bottles of hidden alcohol elsewhere that my suspicions were raised. She started flaking out in her commitments, regularly popped paracetamols, and her whole demeanor changed. It was like she didn't care about anything. I spent a couple of weeks figuring out how on earth I was going to address this. My job was made a whole lot easier when, one evening, Sarah came in with sour face. On her way home from work, the police had pulled her over. She told me with an outraged tone that she'd been forced to take a breathalyzer and failed it, insisted that it must be a mistake, that she'd barely had a lick of alcohol and that she felt perfectly in control. They escorted her to the station where she failed another test. She'd been charged with drunk driving. I thought that this was as good a time as any to address the situation. I decided that not sounding judgmental or harsh was the way to go that I needed to be tactful. So after I heard her out, I started with an easy question. Are you okay? Well, she bit my head off. Of course she wasn't, she'd just been humiliated, how could I be so stupid, she said. That wound me up a bit. Here was me trying to show concern and be gentle, and she just hurls insults at me. I lost myself a bit and bluntly asked, why are you hiding booze? She looked at me with indignation. 
She asked why I was accusing her of drink driving and said that, for the record, she wasn't hiding anything. If there were a bottle or two lurking around, they just got left during tidy-ups. I guffawed, asking how on earth a bottle of brandy could find itself in the cistern during a tidy-up. Her eyes were like daggers after I said that, and then she walked out. I really didn't want to leave her, I loved her more than life itself, but over the next few weeks I felt so stuck. Our discussion had driven our relationship into a wall, and we were trapped there. Any attempts to make amends were shrugged off. By this point, I should note that both kids were getting to an age where they were compost mentis, so that was always an extra worry. One evening, when they were staying with my parents, I broached the subject once more. I said, look, I'm not judging, it's just that I care about you. I don't want you to struggle alone. Now it was her turn to laugh. She said that she'd spent most of her formative years alone and did just fine. I asked her what she meant, and she just shrugged that off too. The real turning point came a couple of months down the line. By this point, barely a happy word was exchanged save for when the kids were around, during which times it was all smiles and hugs, through gritted teeth anyway. Sarah's condition was also noticeably further deteriorating. People were beginning to notice something was wrong. We got invited to a dinner party by the parent of one of Tommy's friends. Everything started out quite well, to the point that I was starting to relax. But then, come the main course, Sarah's starting to get carried away with the wine. She starts making inappropriate comments and embarrassing herself. Nobody knew where to put their face, least of all me. I feigned an emergency and got us out of there before she could really turn it into a disaster. The very worst event came a little further down the line though, parents' evening. That night at our children's infant school turned out to be humiliating. Sarah said to bring the kids and that she'd meet me there. She promised me that she'd be sober. When she walked into the classroom, it was immediately clear that she was at least merry. She wasn't there more than two minutes when she started throwing herself at some of the dads, all who looked mortified, and tripped over the chairs before eventually finding her way to us. I was livid. I just wanted to grab and shake her. It wasn't just about me either, it was the kids she'd really let down. As soon as it was over, I got the kids in the car and pulled her aside to discreetly but assertively voice my disgust. She acted like it was no big deal, told me to lighten up. I was ready to wash my hands of her. She didn't come home that evening, and in that moment, still stewing, I didn't really want her to do so. In the wee hours, there was a knock at the door. It was the police. My wife had been in an accident. Was it serious? She was alive but had been taken to the hospital. I got the kids up and drove them to their grandparents, who agreed to look after them whilst I went off to the hospital. When I got there, I found that she looked pretty battered up. She had bruises all over her face. It turned out that she'd broken a couple of ribs but was, despite appearances, mostly fine. Sarah broke when she saw me. She said that she felt so embarrassed and horrible that she would never take us or her life for granted again. Her tears were the most genuine display I'd seen from her in ages. Any lingering frustration melted away. I said that I'd support her. She said that she would get help. When the family learned of the situation, my Aunt Shelley insisted on coming to stay to help out with the kids and around the house. Well, that's just brilliant, I thought. I had nothing against her, really. It's just that she was a batty old mare that had made Anne Whittacombe look like a fetus. She was never the most switched-on person, but old age made a total dope of her. 
The first evening that she stayed, I slipped into the living room to say I was going to nip out for a bulb, since the one in the hall had blown, when she chimes in and says, wait a minute. She picked up her handbag, rummaged through it, and pulled out an energy-saving bulb. She waved it at me and said, would this do? As if being a mobile DIY store was the most normal thing in the world. And yet, that wasn't nearly the most bizarre thing she did. What really brought home my position was when she called me into the kitchen one night to complain about my whisk. I couldn't believe what I saw. It defied belief, made half of me want to call the asylum, and the other half descend into outrageous laughter. She was standing over the counter holding a bowl of cream, and I watched it jiggling as she whisked it. With my wife's purple you-know-what, the absurdity of the situation was evidently lost on her as she banally complained about this modern rubbish. I was sharing a house with an alcoholic invalid and an old woman who used toys as kitchen utensils. How I didn't go crazy I'll never know. Things did pick up however for a while. Sarah healed nicely and showed genuine commitment to keeping off the drink. She steadily but slowly reverted back to the woman and mother that I loved. For the next couple of years, we enjoyed a sunny period. As George Harrison said though, all things must pass. I knew it was bad news when one of her old friends from her care home days rocked up at our door. I tried to reserve judgment, but it was clear from the off that she was a bad sort. A ratty, skanky sort of woman. She looked every bit as messy and dangerous as she turned out to be. Sarah wanted Jackie to stay for a while, but I didn't really want her around at all. Out of kindness though, I compromised and said she could stay a couple of nights. Jackie was really grateful. I was such a nice and kind bloke, she said. She told Sarah that she could see why she'd married me. I did Britain proud by giving her that ever so polite smile we give to people we don't like. A couple of days turned into a week, a week into two. I tried to politely inquire about her plans. I tried to gently push Sarah into asking her to leave. I didn't want to pressure her too much. I knew that pressure had driven her to booze, but I didn't want that woman around my kids for a moment longer than necessary. More time passed. I saw the warning signs quicker this time. It looked very much like Sarah was back to drinking. I reassured her that if she ever needed a talk, a helping hand, whatever, I was there for her. She smiled innocently and said I was sweet. In the meantime, I went hunting for bottles but came up with nothing. She must have gotten much smarter about her hiding places. As it happened though, the truth was much worse. I came home from work late one evening to find my wife and her friend crouched over the coffee table. They were doing lines. I thought of the kids sleeping upstairs and lost my temper. I grabbed Jackie's lank, ugly hair and dragged her out of the house kicking and screaming. Sarah followed all the while, tugging my jacket and shouting at me. I shoved Jackie onto the ground outside and told her to never set foot here again and that if she did, the police would be called. I grabbed Sarah by the arm and pulled her inside, shut the door, and proceeded to have a loud, nasty argument with her. It was escalating to the point that it risked getting out of hand, but then reason appeared in the form of little Tommy. His big brown eyes were crying from the top of the stairs, and that cut through the anger like a gentle machete. I relived Sarah's denial stage all over again. Yes, she said, I know I have a problem with alcohol, but this is different. She only did a bit now and again for a laugh. She had it completely under control. I said that's what she told herself about the booze. She shook her head. I delivered an ultimatum. Quit the drugs or I'm leaving. 
Naturally, she countered with, do that and you won't see the kids again. It's clear that she made her decision. Trouble was, she had me over a barrel. Custody was one of those areas where women had a major advantage over men. I couldn't even chance that they'd side with me because of her drink issue, as I've seen mothers do much worse and still get custody. So for the time being, I pulled back. She passed out on the sofa, and I went to bed. Sleep was impossible, though. I chastised myself for having cleaned up after them. How careless. I couldn't go on like this, though. She'd gone way too far, doing drugs with children in the house. The children. Every time I thought about them, my blood pressure rose. How could she do it to them? I couldn't, and still can't, understand that. I had to get rid of her one way or another. For the next couple of days, we all fell back into old patterns, playing happy families when the kids were around, not saying a word to each other when they weren't. It occurred to me at work that simply tossing that street rat out probably wouldn't stop Sarah from seeing her. She had an addictive personality after all, and Jackie could provide the fix. I scoured social media to find her but found nothing until I remembered one of the other girls that Sarah used to hang around with as a teenager. Through her profile, I found Jackie's surname, and then I moved on to getting her address. For a few quid, I was able to get it from another website, and so I took note on my phone and left it at that for the time being. There was still a part of me having doubts. I didn't really want to take the kids away from a parent, but how on earth could I navigate the issue otherwise? What really did it for me was a couple of weeks further down the line. I checked the app for our joint savings account and found a few hundred quid had vanished in the interim. That set me on panic mode. If I didn't act soon, we could all be up a creek without a paddle. I took a week off work. Officially, I was going to use the time to get some jobs around the house done. Really though, I wanted to see if Sarah would slip away at any point. She did, thrice, and each time I followed her. She had been honest about each one. They were all mundane tasks. By the time Friday rolled around, I was close to giving up. Then at the 11th hour, almost literally, she went out on the pretense of getting cereal for the morning. I perked up at this because, being pretty late, it was nothing short of odd. I left the kids with a trusted neighbor and got into my car, watching and following far behind as she walked over to the nearest council estate. There, she went to the exact address that I'd noted down weeks earlier. I sat in the car for about 10 minutes and then decided to steal a peek. I walked up to the house and through a slit between the curtains, I saw Sarah and that jerk all over each other. I felt sick. There they were in front of the sofa, practically eating each other. I didn't want to look for a moment more than necessary, but I came here for evidence and I'd be darned if I was turning back now. What I needed was on the table though, coke. I got my phone out and took a picture of the scene. It was a sordid, awful photo, but dynamite nonetheless. Everything that she could be doing wrong, she was doing it. I drove to the police station, gave them the address and the photo, and then headed home. After I picked up the kids, I told them to pack their things and transferred all the money from our joint account into my personal one. She wasn't going to fritter away any more money on drugs. Besides, I needed as much money as possible to relocate and to pay potential legal fees. I had no intention of telling Sarah that I'd left or where we'd be going, but I wasn't going too far, just to the next closest town, little more than 15 miles away. There I rented a flat, and the following day, I began my application to the family court. In the meantime, Sarah texted and called relentlessly. 
With her messages climbing from incensed to deranged, she was out of control. The first hearing came just over a month later. My biggest fear was that Sarah might pull a rabbit out of the hat, that she might get herself together and find a golden ticket. I needn't have worried. In fact, I was gobsmacked when she turned up. She was a wreck. Greasy, disheveled hair, dead eyes, and a creased little dress. I had a funny feeling about all that. She must have pulled herself together enough to get legal aid, as she had a very young lawyer backing her. This set the pace for the whole proceedings, thankfully. I wasn't taking any chances though, so when that night I gave Jackie the bums rush came up, I was a bit economical with the truth. I said that Jackie attacked me in a drug-fueled rage, and that's why there was so much fuss when getting her out. I denied pushing the table over and said Sarah had done that in a fit of pique during our subsequent argument. I was going to do anything and everything to stop her from ever getting near the kids again. It worked. I had done enough, or rather Sarah had. Being a lying, cheating addict with anger issues was all it took to persuade the law that she couldn't be trusted with children. I got full custody. After that, my next move was to get a divorce from her. The day I signed the decree absolutely was the second happiest moment of the past year, only second to getting my kids. We stayed in the flat for a couple of years more, and then this year we moved into a nice little semi. The kids transferred to local schools and have subsequently been doing well, and just recently I've met someone new. It's early days, but I feel a connection to her that I've never known before. It's not all peaches and cream though. My parents, kind as they are, refuse to wash their hands of Sarah. They said that as far as they were concerned, she was their daughter and they would fight for her. Understandably, this caused tension and issues and meant that I had to refuse to turn up to some family occasions. There was even a short few months where we didn't speak because they were trying to push me into handing over cash to them on Sarah's behalf. I told them no, she's not getting a penny out of me. She broke up our family and put the kids in danger. My parents initially were frustrated by my reaction and told me I was being unfair. I said that was ludicrous, that what she did was unfair. What I did was karma, and if it meant depriving her of coke, if it meant being able to provide for the kids, good. She put them through heck. They relayed to me the soul-crushing familiar cycle I'd lived, and so I had to listen as my parents' hopes would be raised again and again, only to be dashed each time. They threw money, love, and support at her, but it amounted to nothing. If anything, she just got worse. I told them time and time again, she'd long since given up. She doesn't want help. Anyone who's been around addiction knows that you can't fight for the addict if the addict won't fight for themselves. Sarah had become a full-blown, unrepentant drug user. She apparently had broadened her horizons, heroin had become her new drug of choice, or it had until her dying body was being transported by ambulance to A&E. She was gone on arrival. It was a heart attack that finished her. An unbelievable thing to happen to a woman in her 30s, but there we go. Dad went to the hospital alone, mom couldn't face it, and told me how dismal she looked. Spotty, gaunt, and wan, or hollowed out to use his phrasing. I didn't go to the funeral. My parents said that the funeral directors had done an admirable job of making her look less of a mess. Said that she almost looked peaceful in the chapel of rest. Almost. Apparently it was a quiet affair. Mom, dad, her old caseworker, and some well-wishers. I remember thinking that poor vicar had a tough job in his hands, having to try and find something nice to say about her. I decided to let the topic sit on the shelf when it came to the kids. 
they were so young and I didn't want their progress derailed because of that sad excuse for a human being. When they're old enough, when they ask, I'll tell them about it. Until then, I refuse to let her poison trickle down into their young lives anymore. To be honest, I'd be happy if I never had to think about her ever again. I feel for OP because I can't imagine feeling like you gave everything you could to this person and multiple times they just go against it and then not only that but cheat on you as well. As painful as the end result was, do you think OP made the right decision by just cutting everything off and leaving them to their own devices? Let me know what you guys think down in the comments. But with that being said, that's all the time we have for today. Now if you want to see another revenge story that was even more crazy than this one, click on the left video. Or if you missed my latest video, click on the right. But with that said, I'll see you all next time with some more stories.